Once upon a time, in China, some believe around the year one double three, head priest of the White Lotus Clan, Pai Mei, was walking down a road, contemplating whatever it is that a man of Pai Mei's infinite powers would contemplate. Which is another way of saying, who knows? <laughs> when a Shaolin monk appeared on the road, traveling in the opposite direction, as the monk and the priest crossed paths, Pai Mei, in a practically unfathomable display of generosity, gave the monk the slightest of nods. The nod was not returned. Now, was it the intention of the Shaolin monk to insult Pai Mei? Or did he just fail to see the generous social gesture? The motives of the monk remain unknown. What is known were the consequences. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing, or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello again, ladies and gents, and welcome back to our Tarantino Triple X 30 Years of All Tour Cinema Retro Series, where we're currently discussing the Kill Bill Whole Bloody Affair right here on the Film Effect Podcast, a weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full film effect treatment i'm ed and i'm Corey, and this is kill bill volume two the incident that happened at the two pines wedding chapel that put this whole gory story into motion has since become legend that woman deserves her revenge we deserve to die. I've killed a hell of a lot of people to get to this point, and I am gonna kill Bill. Before this tale of bloody revenge reaches its climax, there's a few unanswered questions. If I may doesn't kill you, he will make you stronger. <laughs> There are consequences to breaking the heart of a killer. Pretty cool, huh? She's coming to kill you. You see, Cutterway through 88 bodyguards. No, it wasn't really 88 of them. They just called themselves the crazy 88. 
How come? I don't know. I guess they thought it sounded cool. Hi, Mommy. Ah, so it all suddenly seems so clear. I was a killer who killed for you. I had to choose. I chose her. She must suffer to her last breath. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. I'm sorry. I overreacted. You overreacted? In Kill Bill Volume 2, the bride continues her quest of vengeance against her former boss and lover, Bill, the reclusive bouncer, Bud, and the treacherous one-eyed L. Alright, we are back. Kill Bill Volume 2. So, like I said last week, and I have mentioned before, the last time I had seen this film was in the theater back in April, actually, of uh, 2004. And, um, yeah, I was not a fan. I did not like this at all. And, uh, to me, it was night and day. It was nothing like the first movie. And, um, you know, you gotta remember, too, 2004, I was like four months shy of turning 20, so I was still technically 19. And, uh, my, my taste in movies and things I watched it for or looked out for and like I just didn't have the appreciation that I do today you know so looking back on you know I can understand why I had um, the issues that I had with it primarily yeah, the anticlimactic ending and the night and day um, feel to the movie it was nothing like volume one at all and I felt the movie was just too long. And while I still have issues, it's a whole different ball game now. I have a whole new appreciation for this movie. Um, I don't know about you, Corey. Like we have not talked about this yet. It's not like we've you know texted throughout the week or whatever. No. But um. I think I might like this better than Volume One. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you finally rewatched it and uh, got a new take on it because I've always liked both of them. Uh, I mean, honestly, if you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I still consider this all one movie. It's all one whole bloody affair. Don't, but but you know, since you know, since we're talking about two movies here, because that's what the Weinsteins ended up doing and we're gonna get into that shortly but uh yeah uh yeah proceed yeah I was just gonna say I've always liked both of them about equal yeah you ask me on a given year I might say I like the first one better uh, I might say I like the second one better but they've always been pretty equal to me for different reasons that we'll get into uh but I've always enjoyed it yeah even ever since I saw it in theaters, but I can definitely understand why somebody wouldn't. You know, it is very, there are two different halves, pretty much, is what I would say. Oh, yeah, that still stands. This movie is still very night and day uh, compared to the first film. That's still 
is that's still there. But because of the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm twice that age now at this point that I was when I last saw this movie. And I just, you know, have a much different taste in movies in general. Like I said, this movie, just everything is has changed since my 2004 viewing. And um, I, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. Um, it I, I actually finished it up this morning. I watched it last night, uh, the first like hour or so. And then uh, I finished it up this morning. And uh, yeah, I, I just intentionally... Because usually after I watch a movie, I'll go right to my notes and I'll you know, put in my... MVP and finger looking good, final thoughts and pros and cons. I'll fill those out uh, typically after the movie. Uh, but no, I let this movie simmer throughout the day. I went to work and I held off until like about an hour before I left work. I went and did this after thinking about things throughout the day because this movie really gave me a lot to think about. And, um, I, oh God, I really. One of these days, before I die, I have to see these movies like, together the way they were meant to be shown. I want to see the whole bloody affair, goddammit. Um, and just see how that is. So, Me too. Anything Me too. you want to add? Oh, I'm, of, of course. Anything you want to add before we jump into things? The only thing I wanted to add is I just remember when the movie came out, you know, obviously you're excited, but I do remember uh, just the buzz around it. You know, at the time, I, I forget what year this was released, but I was 18 or around that 2004. age. 2004. Yeah. So it was like 18. And I just remember a lot of my friends that saw it were not big fans, you know, you included, but. I just remember the buzz, like everybody was like, loved the first one so much and then so let down by this one, uh, at least in our age group. I'm sure it was different uh, for different areas, but I just remember that part always sticks out in my head and I was kind of like the oddball. I kind of liked both kind of equally uh, as far as our friends went in our age group. That's the only thing I had to add. It kind of stuck out. All right, then. Now that we got that all out of the way, let's jump into first time viewings. It's, it's just that, you see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, so I know we saw this one together because we went opening morning. In yeah. fact, I actually remember that day, not verbatim, but I remember. Uh, we saw like we went to that very first showtime at like what 10 30 11 o'clock because I definitely had to work the mid shift at Blockbuster that day because I remember going like right from the theater straight into work. Um, and this was a long one, and um, yeah, you were with me, like I said, and yeah. uh, went into work. I went into work very sad but uh you know um anything you remember about that day i don't think you worked because i you know you were still you were working on blockbuster with me at that time weren't you yeah yeah maybe maybe at the same location because by this point let me see here april before i was at 
the Fort McHenry store downtown. Yeah, you right by Fort you McHenry. had moved. I think I closed, so I think I, I I think I remember I went home that day, had other stuff I was doing, and then I closed because usually uh, most Friday nights I closed with Cronin, uh, Brian Cronin. That's usually how my Friday nights were. So, Shout out Cronin. Yeah. Shout out Cronin. So that I'm pr- I'm fairly certain that's what happened. All right. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So I want to discuss the uh, story behind the Weinsteins splitting this fucker up into two parts. Uh, Truth be told, there's not really much of a story that I could uncover behind it. Uh, When I did some deep diving into just the backstory into all this and what happened and try... Because I'm going off of memory. I remember this movie first being advertised as one movie. It was his epic, you know, revenge film. And then I look, I pulled the article up. I actually bookmarked it from July 16th, 2003 from IndieWire. The headline is Tarantino's latest Kill Bill split into two films. And uh, the article reads, Miramax will release the new Quentin Tarantino film Kill Bill in two parts according to news and trade reports. In an interview with the New York Times, Miramax chief Weinstein confirmed that the first part of the movie will be released in theaters on October 10th, the film's original release date, with part two debuting between two to six months after that date. Tarantino's latest, the martial okay, blah, blah, blah. So, um... Yeah, at this point, they're they're still coming out in October, just not the full film. You're getting the first half, and then this article here is saying two to six months. So, you know, it it would end up being six months later, the latter. Um, But yeah, I could not really find out. The only thing I know is that it was a Weinstein decision. Um if I'm not mistaken, QT was like on board after the fact, but it took some convincing because he wanted this to be his grand epic and why the hell not? Um, but you know, money talks and those Weinsteins love those dollars. So you want better way to just make as much money off. They could Uh, just make as much just squeeze that orange as tightly as they could because you know it's Tarantino he was red hot at the time this film this is his first film in six years so what better thing to do than to split it up into two and uh, get double the money or at least you know hope the uh, return uh, of money uh, figures are uh, predominant after Volume 2 came out, which they weren't. But uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, yeah. I I just remember hearing an interview a while back. Uh, Tarantino said they were in production, they were already filming, and at that point it was still supposed to be one movie, 
but he just kept right. writing and adding stuff like he, the, you know, he had the script, but he just kept like adding and adding and adding. And then I think, I don't, I don't know when in production, but at a certain point, they just took a look and they're like, oh man, this movie's going to be four hours. And I think that's when the Weinsteins, you know, stepped in because I can understand, you know, releasing, even at that time, I think releasing a three hour movie or, you know, three hours and change would have been a pretty bold thing. You know, it, it was a little different 20 years ago than it is now, uh, especially four hours, <laughs> let alone that, which is what it ended up being about. So I think he just, Tarantino was just so excited and pumped that he was just adding so much. And then it just turned into this huge movie that they had to end up splitting up. I think from what I remember in the interview, I think that's the basic story on, you know, how this came to be in two parts. Right. Uh, something else that I pulled up doing my research was a article with, uh, Michael Madsen from two years ago. Um, the article from Cinema Blend, trustworthy source, says why Kill Bill star Michael Madsen thinks the movie being split into two parts hurt its Oscar chances. So this was something else that was talked about. Uh, the movie's being split up for Oscar purposes. Not quite sure how that really uh, makes any sense when you think about the grand scheme of things unless you're just trying to get twice the Academy Awards. Uh, it would later on not get nominated for everything that it was hoped to get nominated for. Uh, let me see. Um, so the, there's two quotes from Madsen that I pulled from this article. Uh, the first is when he recalled being informed of the change, you know, from it being from one film now to by Tarantino himself saying, I remember I was actually shooting in my trailer with David Carradine, the opening scene with me and David, which would end up being the opening scene to this movie, um, but the first scene with the two early on. And he came to me in that day, Quentin, and he said, Michael, can you believe it? And I go, believe what? And he goes, I just talked to the producer and they want to release this in two parts, part one and part two. And I go, really? And he says, do you think I should do that? And I go, I don't know. And he goes, I think it's ridiculous. And he started laughing. I'm not going to do that. Meanwhile, six months later, it was volume one and volume two. I think it confused the hell out of people. Uh, I don't think it confused people as much as it just angered some. And then the second quote that I yanked from this was in it was about this is about the the Oscar stuff the what the article says the, the headline and I, the quote says and I think that it's the reason why Uma probably dot 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 like I think David should have been nominated I think David should have gotten an Academy Award I think Uma should have gotten one they should have went to their house and knocked on their door and handed it to her nobody knew what was going to happen in the second part because there didn't seem to have an ending to the movie and everyone had to wait three months for the ending to come out and then it was past the qualifying time for certain things I think that confused a few people but when you see it now I usually tell people to watch part two first and then go back and see part one because it makes more sense for me that way uh, he brings up a good point that I never really once thought sat and thought about and basically what he's saying is um, Part one and two, you watch part two first, and then part one, you're watching it like in in order that way. Um, actually, no, you're not, 
because if you look at the list in the part part one when she pulls out that list after she kills um Vivica she's the uh, uh, Lucy Liu's character I'm already forgetting their names god damn it there is already crossed off so yeah that doesn't make sense why the hell would you watch part two first then I have no idea maybe because he's alluding to the opening scene and everything I mean some things happen for, I don't know some things about part two or volume two act as a prequel but not the whole film though I would never tell someone to watch part two first that's just me, though. That's why I never thought about it. It's ludicrous. Anyway, um, so that's that. Do you have anything to add to the reasoning behind it being two parts? No. Nah. you think it was uh, Oscar buzz? I don't think it was. I just think it was too long. I think they didn't want to cut anything from Tarantino's right. movie. You know, obviously, he didn't want to trim things down. I don't think the wine scenes wanted to make him trim things down. Hey, let's just release it in two and get more money. You know, why not do that? Win-win. Well, you know what the irony is here? Four to five years later, they would go and release, you know, Grindhouse. They'd, they'd produce that and put it out. And yeah. You, you, another one that you, me, and I believe Wiser, shout out Wiser, he was there with us too. We all saw that, like the, the midnight showing at uh, <laughs> and I'll, Marsh. And I'll say this, there is something to be said about releasing too long of a movie because I remember I was fading during Death Proof oh, that night. Oh, yeah. I was fading. I mean, we'll, we'll touch upon that once we get to the Death Proof episode, but I still stand that Death Proof should have been the first movie and then Planet Terror because by the time Planet Terror, which was a fucking roller coaster ride, was over, you get Death Proof and it's Tarantino. Not that it's a hell of a movie. Oh, it's my least favorite of his, but still, there's parts of that movie that were one hell of a ride. But overall, the movie's a lot of dialogue because it's Quentin. It's what he's known for. Anyway, more to that once we get to the Death Proof episode coming later this year. In the meantime, let's move on to Live Top 5. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top 5 side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Let's do top five favorite westerns. Only fitting, because this movie acts as a western. Uh, where the, as the first volume plays out more of a martial arts film. Uh, so I don't really have any honorable mentions because my Western, my, my, my top five Westerns have always pretty much predominantly been my top five favorite Westerns and it really hasn't changed. Uh, so my number five, getting this out of the way, is uh, Open Range. Have you ever seen Open Range? What are the newer Westerns? Yeah, that came out, I think, when I was still working at Blockbuster. That's uh, Kevin Costner, came out, right? Came out around the time Volume 1 came out. Yeah, Kevin Costner. Yeah, and, I've seen uh, it. Robert Duvall. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty good, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is good. How about you? So, I have a couple honorable mentions. I've actually grown Westerns. I wouldn't say I'm a huge, huge fan, but I've definitely seen a lot more uh, in the past decade than I used to. Uh-huh. Um, so I have a couple honorable mentions. First one, Mel Gibson, Maverick. Love that movie. Uh, you know, it has the poker element. 
Um, right. Mel Gibson was uh, really good in it. Just always like that movie. It's one of those that was on TNT a lot and stuff. And I would always watch it. Always a big fan of that one. Um, this one, they're, it's, they're fantastic movies, but I didn't put them on my list for a different reason, which you'll figure out later. Uh, but the Man With No Name trilogy. Uh, I don't think you can really talk about Westerns without at least talking about uh, a part of the trilogy. You know, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Arguably one of the best Westerns ever made. Uh, but for reasons we'll get into later i didn't put it on my list sergio yeah sergio you have to have you have to mention it uh but and i love the movies i have it on blu-ray i just didn't put on a list which will make sense yeah it'll make sense as i go into my list and my last one i wanted to mention was deadwood huge fan of deadwood on hbo uh i love i'm an only fan i love timothy oliphant so you know him in one of the leading roles um also, I just love uh, that show. Like, they turn cocksucker into like a verb, an adjective, a pronoun. Like, I, that'll always stand out. Like, just hearing Ian McShane say cocksucker, it just stands out. But uh, excellent Western show, great cast on that one. So that's. Uh, oh, I I I love Deadwood, dude. Uh, shout out Deadwood. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. I totally forgot because it's a show, so I really wasn't thinking that well, way. Well, there was a movie. Yeah. there was a movie. You're right. Shit, and that movie was really fucking good. Oh, game changer. Okay. Okay. Uh, so anyway, since I took up time, uh, my number five is Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. Huge fan of this one. Uh, I just remember seeing it for the first time on cable. Uh, back when it first came out, um, star-studded cast, Gene Hackman playing his role as the evil uh, overlord douchebag. Young Leo DiCaprio is awesome. Um, young Russell Crowe, Lance Hendrickson. Uh, who else am I forgetting? I mean, the, the, like the whole cast like is just excellent. Like it's Sharon a 90s Stone. movie. Sharon Stone. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of hers, but she's good in the movie Leo. You know, for her part. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I know there's other people I'm forgetting, but I just did love you say the Leo. The I did say Leo, young Leo DiCaprio. Okay, I didn't hear yeah. that. Okay. Um, as Gene Hackman's son. Uh, but I just love the whole premise of a gunfighter uh, tournament. Uh, I just, it's just a fun, easy movie to watch. Love that one. So number five, Quick and the Dead. Yeah, I've never actually seen Quick and the Dead all the way through. I've seen bits and pieces. Like I know, like of stuff like when I was younger it was on I think Showtime or something and I watched you know a, a good chunk like the second half um so I've never seen it all the way through though so gotta change that one of these days anyway uh my number four is now that you mention it fuck it I'm gonna break I'm gonna, I'm gonna take Tombstone and put that down in my honorable mentions Making a few tweaks here since you brought Deadwood the movie into the mix. I totally fucking forgot about that one. Therefore, my number four is previously my number three, and that is 310 to Yuma, the newer one, the, the remake. Not the original. Yeah. yeah, that was like one of the early Blu rays. Good. Yeah, Speaking good of Russell Crowe, Ben Foster, badass motherfucker, even in a Western. Can't stop yeah. the Foster man. Um, 
Yeah, even, like, fucking Luke Wilson shows up in a random-ass scene, has, like, no dialogue. He's in it with, like, his brothers and, like, not, not his real-life brothers, but, like, he's, like, like, a trio of brothers I vaguely remember him showing up as. And he's in it quick enough to be like, hey, it's Luke Wilson, and then, bang, he gets killed. <laughs> it's one of those things. So, yeah, 310, though. 310 The Yuma is a, a really good movie. Granted, haven't seen it in about a decade, but I've seen it enough to, to, to add to this list and keep it there. So, yeah. What about you? What's number four? My number four is actually by the same director of uh, Kill Bill Volume 2, uh, The Hateful Eight. Um, I, you know, I I love The Hateful Eight. It's just one. I, I liked it when we saw it. We saw, like, the roadshow thing in theaters together. I liked it then, but um, just re-watching it, the subsequent, subsequent reviewings, uh, I just love that movie even more. I just love the whole setup. Uh, you know, you can't trust anybody, all these bounty hunters and all these people in this little cabin in the middle of nowhere. It's just a perfect setup for a Tarantino movie. For a guy who is known for dialogue and story, to me, that film is just perfect. And every time I rewatch it, it just I like it a little bit more and it climbs up my rankings a little bit more. And just Kurt Russell, Sam Jackson are just awesome. And, and Walton Goggins. I got to mention Walton Goggins. I love me. Oh, yeah. Tim Walton Goggins. And Tim Roth. That movie's so good. Uh, just yeah. refer back to my episode last summer with uh, Ian from Best Film Ever. It was a special guest. And we talked about that film for like three hours. It was great. Um, fun episode. Check it out. Anyway, um, oh, wow. God damn it. You dropped another one on me that I totally fucking overlooked. Because I goddamn love Hateful Eight. And you know what's funny, too? I forgot to mention it uh, before we jumped into things uh, earlier in the, in the show. Uh, the, 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 even, like, my, my whole perspective on Volume 2 for Kill Bill now. It's like... I, I just want to let people know that, you know, the, the, the last episode of this, you know, retro series is going to be, you know, our new like our our top nine you know kill bill and not kill bill jesus quentin tarantino movies uh just after you know we've been going through these and covering them throughout the year so by december we would have you know got a fresh perspective on all nine of his movies because we would have have watched them all for you know the the show so taking that all those you know, episodes that we could do throughout the year and our fresh viewings. Uh, just go ahead and do a fresh top, you know, nine. I don't know if it's going to be one episode with just you or me or you or Sean, uh, me and Sean you or, 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 or the whole gang. Maybe that'll be like a special fewer cast, you know. December's a long ways from now, so it's, it, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do plan on doing, like, after this is all, you know, like a wrap-up episode featuring, you know, our new top nine after doing this series, you know. Does that make sense? I know I could yeah, have shortened all that. I, I could have condensed all that to like 30 seconds, but I like to talk. So uh, anyway, um, your number three, your turn. Yeah, my number three is The Magnificent wait, wait, wait. Seven. Where's it? Number four. No, it's my, I mean, I already did four. So did you not go yet? Hang on a second. You're, you're, you're shit. 
Okay, I didn't do three yet. Fuck, my bad. <laughs> well, now that we know your number three is, keep going. Finish it up. Yeah, so my number uh, three is Magnificent Seven, the 1960 version, not the newer version. The newer one's not okay, bad. Thank God. I didn't hate it, but it's not by any stretch a great movie. But the original Magnificent Seven from 1960, Yul Brenner, Charles Bronson, Steve McQueen, just an all-star cast. I uh, just love the whole setup of, you know, like this, the seven guys coming in to save the town, take out the evil um, land baron. Just love that movie. I've discovered that one more recently. I don't think I'd seen the original uh, until maybe eight or nine years ago. That was a newer one that I discovered. Um, and I've rewatched it uh, several times since. And yeah, it's just one of my favorite Westerns. Great setup. All right. Uh, so my number three is going to be Deadwood, the movie. <laughs> um, that movie had the best ending. I mean, yeah, it ended the series and all, but like, and it was just as an ending in general with, you know, you know uh, Ian McShane's character on his deathbed and, uh, you know, she, he, she's saying the prayer to him because he's about to, you know, die or pass on. And uh, what is that final worst thing he says? Is like, let him fucking waste. We just talk about the Lord or something like that. And he says something, and then the movie it just goes right to black, and then boom, it's over. It's like that is the most Anne McShane way to fucking end just an incredible three season plus one film run on this series. That just, in my opinion, and I'm sure you share the same. Just, just a film that just or a series that completely got mishandled and mistreated by HBO could have went longer than it did um, the seasons could have been well the seasons were actually the season I think about it they, they were pretty decent sized seasons I think I think all three seasons had like what was it something like 22 episodes if I'm not mistaken it's been a few years since I watched them so yeah, I honestly don't remember. It's been a long time since I watched the show. I mean, I saw the movie more recently, but yeah, it definitely it should have been on longer. I feel like if it would have came along a little bit later, it would have yeah. it would have been handled better. I think HBO kind of got their shit together a little bit more down the road. Right. All right. So I'll go again for our number two. My number two is El Dorado. So this dates back to growing up with my grandfather, Pete, who, you know, was a diehard John Wayne fan. I mean, this guy had, once my great-grandfather, Pop, passed away, he took Pop's room and just turned it into a John Wayne shrine room, for Christ's sake, before I took over and made it my playroom. Um, That's how much the man loved John Wayne. And up until, you know, his passing four years ago like he had nothing but John Wayne all all over the place and uh you know my grandmother passed away unfortunately back in 06 and like he had the whole house to himself no more knickknacks he was fucking on took all the knickknacks replaced with John Wayne fucking statues and shit like the man my point is the man loved him some John Wayne and El Dorado was just one of those films that I would always sit down and watch with them to kind of like get that bond in. And uh, I did that enough with that movie with him. It was always on TCM or uh, he had it on VHS. 
And uh, that just seemed to always be the John Wayne film he watched the most. I was like, I guess his go-to. We never, we never talked the uh, the man, the the myth, the legend. But uh, you know, you, you were there for it. You you saw how much the man loved John Wayne. So when I yeah. think about this movie, I think about him. My number two, El Dorado. Yeah. No, I remember it was always John Wayne hour at that house. Yeah. Um, so my number two is one you had mentioned, uh, previously, but, uh, my number two is tombstone. Uh, just one I've always liked, uh, Kurt Russell's wider, uh, perfect, uh, Val Kilmer's awesome in that movie. Probably one of my favorite Val Kilmer roles. You know, I've always loved the I'm your huckleberry. I always loved that. Always appreciated it. I bet um, you do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just, that was one, I think it just has to do with when I grew up. Cause that movie was new when I was a kid and I just remember constantly seeing it on the different channels and all that. So, yep. That one's on my list. Tombstone. Nice. I like it. Uh, so I mean, I love hateful eight, but I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, Keep it omitted from my list, even though it should be on here. I'm just going to say it's technically not a Western, even though it is. Anyway, I'm just, now that I'm done bullshitting my way out of that one, my number one is <laughs> True Grit. And uh, for those of you wondering which version, both. That is the John Wayne version, <laughs> of course, and the Coen Brothers. Because I really do like movies equally. They're, and they're not really too far apart from one another. I know there's some things that are different. Um, but overall, for the most part, they uh, did a faithful ap- adaptation of the uh, the John Wayne classic. And I like both movies. I'm, I'm actually, as I'm saying all this, I'm looking at my collection and my Blu-rays, and there they both are. The whatever year that is, 68 or something like that. And the, uh, the what was that, 2010? Yeah, 2010, the Coen Brothers version. So, I, I, I dig them. I dig them both. I, I think uh, Jeff Bridges at, at that age is perfect for uh, the, the rooster character. And, uh, yeah, that'll always be uh, my cow, my favorite cowboy movie. My favorite western movie. I sound like my grandfather now. God damn it. My favorite cowboy movie. No, my favorite western. True Grit. I'll, I'll take both, please. What about you? My number one is a movie that I remember seeing when I was young and liking. Uh, but each time I watch it, I just appreciate it a little bit more. Uh, my number one is Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Um, so that came out in the early 90s. Obviously, I was a little bit young at the time. But just rewatching it, just the take on the Western, because obviously Clint Eastwood, huge Western star, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Man with No Name trilogy, ton of other movies, and then just in the early '90s, he was at that age where he was getting older and then obviously transitioning into directing. Uh, and that Unforgiven was just such a way for him to leave that genre kind of behind. Like, just such a powerful story. He he was just at the perfect time to make that movie. Um, Morgan Freeman, a huge supporting cast in it. Um, you know, if I just talk about a Western that left the biggest impact, that movie definitely did. Uh, Clint Eastwood, 
Uh, I've always been a huge fan of his directing. Uh, I haven't seen as many of his acting roles. I mean, like I've seen that, like every which way, but loose. Like, you know, I've seen some of his stuff, but I would say I'm more of a fan of his as directing than acting. And in this one, uh, Unforgiven, you get both. You get a powerful performance from him and you get, um, you know, obviously him behind the camera. And it's just not your typical Western, you know, it's about redemption more than anything else. And I've always appreciated that about that film. And I've always just been a huge fan. Uh, I, I can't help but notice you had mentioned uh, Unforgiven being his, uh, his final cowboy movie. I would just like to just like to add that cry macho would like you to go fuck yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that one. But is that set during like modern time, though? I have not set? seen it. I have not seen the movie. Can't cannot speak on the movie. Um, it, it for for all I know, it might not even be a western, but uh, it just looks. I like took it as like a modern, like I guess like a neo western. I guess is probably yeah, what I think sense. it takes place during modern day. Okay, I, I wouldn't know. Um, but yeah, I, I've said this on the show before uh, to Sean. That I've never seen Unforgiven, and that's still I've I've still yet to sit down and watch it. Um, no reason, just um, I don't know, but that'll change, I'm sure. And uh, for the record, it was it came out 30 years ago, 92, so it's, it's about to have an anniversary. I believe it came out in May of 92, but uh, don't quote me on that. Um, it's a big movie. They were actually. I don't know. I heard about this online, but they're actually going to name a roller coaster at Six Flags, New Jersey, after that movie. Isn't that insane? Unforgiven. Wait, Wait what? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Six Flags, New Jersey. They had, um, I think it was. Yeah, I, 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 I already get the connection. They're, they're all. It's all Warner Brothers property. So. Go yeah, on. there was a roller coaster they were installing called Viper. Uh, and it was a looping roller coaster. It didn't last long because it was a, made by uh, a company called Togo, which makes like terrible rides. Like they got sued oh, several know. times. Oh, oh I know, a, I know. Yeah, I, I watch a, a lot. I watch a lot of the videos. Like I watch like Coaster Studios and uh, the the Funk Land, and uh, there's a couple of enthusiasts, coaster enthusiasts who I follow. And watch their yeah. like you know walkthroughs and shit like that. Like El Toro Ryan's one of the people I watch frequently and shit. Yeah. So yeah, I like yeah. El Toro Ryan. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge roller coaster. He's funny as shit. So, yeah, so I I like watching that stuff. Um, I forget who it was that I, I saw or I read something, but it was definitely they were thinking of calling it Unforgiven, but then at the last minute they realized maybe we shouldn't have a roller coaster themed after a western. And maybe we should go with like a generic like snake theme, but the roller coaster only lasted like seven or eight years anyway. So who cares? But it was just interesting. Unforgiven the roller coaster. Can you imagine that? That's first of all, no. And second of all, that sounds like a fact that uh, airtime thrills would drop. One of the another one of the uh, enthusiast YouTubers that I watch frequently. Uh, that's funny though. It, it makes sense. Warner Brothers. So it's all familiar. All right then. Um, yeah, got a lot to say about this uh, this film. So.
So if I sound like shit, first and foremost, it's because I'm getting over a mild head cold and I'm a bit congested. Like, I've got this new mic arm that's so convenient for me and everything, but I still, you know, I mentioned like either on last week's episode or last week's recast, I had mentioned my posture being the reason. And I still blame that for uh, the reason I always sounded like I was all stuffed up because I was always leaning down into the mic to talk and shit now that I've got this arm and I can just sit however I want to fucking please. And this thing can just, you know, adjust as well as it wants or as well as it does, rather. Um, yeah, I'm still sounding like this, but that's all. Uh, just a mild head cold that I'm getting over and uh, I feel fine and I am fine and... Uh, I tend to be better, hopefully, by fewer cast or a panic room. So, anyway. And uh, real quick, before we get into this episode, or uh, the, the plot, uh, shout out to everyone who listened to our Volume 1 episode last week. Uh, pretty good numbers, pretty good turnout. Uh, a lot of people listened to it, and uh, are still listening to it, actually. We just had, like, like, 15 new listens just today alone, which was pretty good. And, and I haven't even promoted it because I've been doing a lot of stuff. I've been forgetting. I haven't, I haven't forgotten to promote lately in the last week or so. I've been just busy doing other things. So, anyway, um, the plot. So right as I press play, I see that this second half is two hours and sixteen minutes long, and I'm like, "Fuck!" I'm here. I am hitting play, thinking it's like the first, uh, the first half. It's like an hour and forty. Nah. Nah, nah, this is like two hours and almost two and a half. And I'm like, holy shit. Okay, here we go. So we hear the opening monologue from the opening to the first half while the credits play off. And then it comes back to the screen and we see it as he's about to shoot her from the first uh, volume. Then the bride, we see her driving in black and white as she tells us about her successes from the first half and how she's coming for Bill at that moment. And when we sh- and when she gets to her destination, she's going to kill Bill. So we cut to chapter six because, you know, we're still running off that whole option that this is one continuous movie. Uh, and it's Massacre at Two Pines, or at least that's what the newspaper called it. The local news, the, the the local TV news called it the El Paso, Texas Wedding Chapel Massacre. She says, um, and this is you know opening black and white. It's her, her friends, her br- soon well groomsman or or groom husband to be almost almost. Christopher Allen Nelson, makeup effects artist, who's actually showed up in a couple movies and acting roles. He did the makeup for the Halloween films, the new three, the 2018 and the Kills and Now Ends. It's coming out in a few months. He did the makeup, and then in the first one, 2018, he played the role of one of the two cops that were fighting over. He was the cop who had the brownie. <laughs> And uh, the, the <laughs> like the like the child's you know kindergarten lunch or whatever he called it, and he gets the the man o' lantern. He's get he gets that gnarly demise, and he was also he popped up in previous episode inherent vice. Um, he was the dead body that that Joaquin falls over uh, in the movie and shit, and he's done a couple of other roles here and there, but primarily he's known for his makeup work. He won an Oscar for. Um, 
uh, the Suicide Squad. I'm sorry, Suicide Squad, not the Suicide Squad, but Suicide Squad in 2016. And he's currently the co-host of the Thing with Two Heads podcast, who the other host is Sean Clark. And we have an episode up from last month, a conversation with episode me and Sean did, uh, which is a really good one. Check it out. It's one of our most popular episodes, actually. Uh, so anyway, back to the movie. Um, you know, uh, they're talking over with uh, the, the 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 priest or the father and his his and the mother and the of the chapel, and it's a, it's a small chapel in the you know in the desert. You know, because this is El Paso, it's Texas, just a lot of desert. And you know, they're uh, it's a rehearsal, and she's getting you know, it's it, what is it? We see uh, Sam Jackson. He he pops up as the uh, the pianist named Rufus, saying that he can play "Love Me Tender," and uh, he says he's the man. He's played with so many bands. If they come through Texas, he's played with them. He says. So it's at this point where uh, the bride leans back and says, "This bitch is pissing her off, so she's going to go out and get some fresh air." So she does. Now she's walking outside. She can hear a flute playing. and she knows right away what's going on. We know right away what it is. Enter Bill, who's founder. He's outside playing his little flute on the porch all by his lonesome. And she's like, how did you find me? And his response is fucking epic. He's like, I'm the man. That's all he says. I'm the man. Tommy's hair. Tommy's the guy she's about to marry. Chris Brown, Nelson's character. Tommy, um, oh God, what is his name? Tommy Plimpton. That's his full name. Yeah, he's just got like that bleach blonde, spiky hair. So yeah, yeah. he's got that 2004 look. You know, all all that was all the rage back then. Come on, you had it, I had it, everyone had it. Uh. Yeah, he says he likes his hair, and that uh, she tells him that he owns a record store in El Paso, and that's where she also works. You know, she says she loves it. She gets to listen to music all day long, make money, enjoy life, and then uh, you know they're just catching up. Okay, and well, yeah, I would just say like Beatrix is like kind of feeling Bill out because she doesn't know exactly where Bill's at right now. Like, is he really mad? Is he? kind of resigned to the fact that she's moving on and marrying this guy, you know, so really in this dialogue, you can see just Uma Thurman's face. Like she's just trying to size up bill and see kind of what he's thinking, you know? And I think Carradine does a great job, but he's playing it cool deep down. We know what's going to happen obviously, but uh, you know, he's playing it cool at the time. So she kind of starts to relax as it goes on. Like, 
you know, he's going to let it happen. He's kind of okay with it, even though he's not happy. You know, that's kind of the feeling um, Beatrix is getting, but obviously that's not what's happening at all. He's just kind of saying a farewell, I guess, at this point. Well, I just want to add that there's not a bad role of celluloid in this movie that features David Carradine. Not a single one. Every fucking second he spends in this movie, it's, it's perfect. It's perfection. And again... Got to remind people, this is our first time seeing Bill. We didn't see him in volume one. We heard him. Saw his hand. Didn't see him. So, this is our grand introduction to David Carradine. And it is one hell of an introduction. And she lets him eventually come inside. And before we get to that, I, just, I got this note here. It's like, while he's talking to her... Just, I just personal, just personal moment that I had. I just had this sudden rush of emotion that hit me as they're reminiscing, and then suddenly she calls out for Tommy and quickly tells him to call her Arlene, and it was a nice moment while watching it. That's the best way to describe it. It was just I was really best, just best away in the in the movie and in the moment with these two, and I, I don't know. It felt like. I don't know if it was the fact that I was kind of putting myself in Carradine's shoes, like you know, um, you know, because I've 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 suffered you know heartbreak before, and there's been relationships where I've just didn't want to end, and I can I can kind of relate. I don't know. I just felt myself put myself in his shoes, and then actually getting that opportunity to come face to face with the person that you've you know been wanting to just talk to you got questions i'm sure about the yin yang and and everything and yeah and and it was just a moment i was having and i could relate and and i was just really enjoying this scene in particular no i i did too and i you know i think a lot of people can relate to that you know like you were with a girl you didn't want her to leave or boy you know whoever but you didn't want them to leave and they did and you know everybody's been there where they didn't want the relationship to end and, you know, it's two-sided in this scene while Beatrix is trying to feel out Bill and see kind of how upset if he's going to do anything. I think Bill at this point, even though, he, you know, obviously we know the assassin gang is there, I think he still hasn't fully decided that he's going to massacre. I think he's kind of given Beatrix a chance like to say, I've made a mistake. I'm going to go home with you, Bill. I really honestly do think if she would have turned around right then, and went with him. I don't think any of this would have happened. I think he hadn't made up his mind yet that obviously there's no way for us to know that. That's just me. That's just what I think. That's just me reading into it. But I don't think he had decided until she walks away to go down and finish rehearsal. I don't think bill had made that decision yet until she walks away to go finish rehearsal. In my opinion, I could be completely wrong. Yeah. You know, maybe it never really, thought about it that way but while you were I, I, I just I kind of had like those 30 seconds to think about it while you were talking and I don't know maybe I think I, I think I'm on the opposite side of the of the specter here with, with that um, I think Bill had his mind made up the moment he arrived um, because ultimately she betrayed him and everyone she she, she betrayed that trust and uh 
you know, trust is a pretty big thing when it comes to stuff. It's anything, really. Trust is always, you know, key. If you ain't got trust, you ain't got shit. And, you know, she broke that when she ran away and, and tried going into hiding. And like Bill said, he's the man. You ain't gonna fucking hide from him. And therefore, yeah, I, I personally, you know, it's it's up to interpretation, I guess. And I, but I, I, I honestly think that his mind was made up when he arrived. Hence the reason that they were all, you know, the four assassins were out there waiting. Basically, they weren't wait wait they weren't waiting for a cue. They were just, you know, just they were just gonna do it no matter what. So anyway, but like I said, that could be up to anyone's interpretation. Um. And then as Uma's about to rehearse for the last time, she runs back to Bill and gives him two tearful kisses. Like, I just right here in my notes that this scene is so much better than I remembered it being. Fucking wow. So then we cut to chapter seven, The Lonely Grave of Paula Schultz. And uh, color is uh, reintroduced to the film as we cut to the desert with Bill and Bud as Bill's catching butt up with the events of the first film, before asking him if he's had his, if he, if he still has his sword. And he says that he pawned it years ago, and he got 250 bucks for it. And he's like, <laughs> I know. But that was like, you got $250 for a priceless sword? <laughs> like, I just love Bill's reaction. He's like, that was a priceless yeah. sword. Like, a special. No, the, I, <laughs> I remember the line. Because uh, Bill, you know, David Carradine, he's like, that was a, you pawned a priceless Hattori Hanzo sword. And Bud, Michael Madsen, is like, well, it wasn't priceless in Texas. It was $250 at the pawn <laughs> yeah. shop in Texas. I just love that line. Oh, <laughs> it's awesome. God. This fucking Bill is completely flabbergasted by that revelation and tells him to stop being mad and start being afraid because she's coming to kill him. And Bud says he doesn't dodge guilt. And I, I like that line a lot. I, it was a lot to... Uh, it, it was a powerful line. She doesn't dodge guilt. Or he doesn't dodge guilt. Um, and he says that woman deserves her revenge and they deserve to die. But then again, so does she. So we'll see. You telling me she cut her way through 88 bodyguards before she got to O'Rin? No, that wasn't really 88 of them. They just called themselves the crazy 88. How come? I don't know. I guess they thought it sounded cool. <laughs> Anyhow, they all fell under her Hanzo sword. She got a Hanzo sword? He made one for her. Didn't he swear a blood oath to never make another sword? It would appear he has broken. Them Japs sure know how to hold a grudge, don't they? <laughs> well, maybe you just tend to bring that out in people. I know this is a ridiculous question before I ask it. But you haven't by any chance kept up with your swordplay. I, uh... <clears throat> I pawned that years ago. You hawked a Hattori Hanzo sword. It, it was priceless. <laughs> well, 
Not in El Paso, it ain't. <laughs> in El Paso, I got me $250 for it. I'm a bouncer in a titty bar, Bill. If she wants to fight with me, all she's got to do is come down to the club and start some shit, and we'll be in a fight. I know we haven't spoken in some time. And the last time we spoke wasn't the most pleasant. But you've got to get over being mad at me and start becoming afraid of me because she is coming and she's coming to kill you. And unless you accept my assistance, I have no doubt she will succeed. Dodge guilt, and I don't chew out of paying my comeuppance. Can we just forget the past? That woman deserves her revenge. And we deserve to die. <laughs> then again, so does she. So I guess we'll just see. Won't we? Yeah, valid point. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's see, not an angel. <laughs> I, I want more. Well, what happened between Bill and Bud years prior? Because they leave it ominous. And it's brought up here. It's it's heavily implied throughout this first half of this half that there was a bad falling out between Bill. Because, you know, we find out Bill and Bud are brothers and they had a bad falling out. And I just would really like to know what happened i don't know why i want to know so bad but i i that's just the curiousness in me i don't know did you think yeah. about that too oh yeah i mean i would totally like to know uh you know exactly what happened but you know it's just so funny you have two opposite sides so you have bill like the cool i'm the boss like carity he's just knows what he's he the is man. he's the man he's cool with it and he's just this cool ass assassin. And then you have Bud, who used to be cool. And now he's just kind of resigned. Like he's just going to live in the middle of nowhere in his trailer. And it almost just seems like he's got just like a lot of regret and a lot of remorse. And, you know, I deserve this life. I'm just going to live here and do my thing. And, you know, basically I blew all my money. I'm just going to live here, do my thing and until I die pretty much. Nah, see, I have more to say on Bud uh, later on because I think Bud's misunderstood. There's more to Bud than meets the eye. So I'm going to be bringing him up later on just in future category, just saying. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, now, I got two notes here. Um some trivia. Uh, now, I, we, I still have trivia tidbits, of course, but I, I like to sprinkle trivia as we go through the plot. So, uh, for this uh, scene here, Bill's car. Bill's car is sitting in the background. 
It's a symbol of the status of... It, no, I'm sorry. It's a symbol of the status as leader of the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad. While the assassins have snake-picked names, Bill is known as the Snake Charmer and drives the Italian sports car to Tommaso di uh, Magusta, which can be seen behind him when he goes to visit Bud in this scene here. Magusta is Italian for mongoose, a mammal known for its speed and killing venomous snakes. Eh? Eh? Hmm. Uh, Tarantino's nod to his home state of Tennessee is shown in this scene here, but his spit cup, it's a uh, coffee can for Oak Ridge Coffee. Now, Oak Ridge is a town just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, where Tarantino was born. So those are my tidbits for that scene. Um, then we see Bud go to a strip joint, and we see Butch's White Civic. Uh, in front of the My Oh My Club. Uh, Butch, the White Civic, after hitting Marcellus Wallace in Pulp Fiction. It was also seen in Jackie Brown. And now it is seen here in the parking lot to the left-hand side of the screen uh, on that big pants, uh, pan back shot of the, uh, the club as he pulls up. Uh, so he goes inside and gets chewed out immediately by Sid Haig and Larry Bishop for being late once again. Also for his cowboy hat. So I love seeing Sid Haig. I miss Sid Haig. Um, Me too. And this was right before like the whole Sid Haig resistance happened. Like his whole like resurgence after House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, he did Corpses and then it was shelved. I'm trying to think here. What came out first? Actually, Corpses did come out first. It so, did. Yeah, but still, it came out first. I mean, he still wasn't known like he was. Like, I would argue that Sid Haig like really peaked in popularity after Devil's Rejects. Um, oh, absolutely. Now, you know, we, we we'll talk about them another day. But um, yeah, this is when he was still like his his resurgence was still in the beginning stages. We'll call it that. And he's here in a minor role. He's in it for like. 20 seconds at if that talking about he's just there enough to be behind the bar and to let bud know he's fucking late and that uh uh, uh what the hell is his name uh i forgot the owner's name but the, the owner wants to see him uh so larry bishop is the owner here and he's doing coke with this woman he's like i love his way with these women, he gives her the fucking straw, or whatever they use, or, or the bill, and he's like, "Here, be somebody." <laughs> it's like Jesus <laughs> Christ, dude. So I need um to let everyone know that Larry Bishop is the fucking son, or prof- uh, he's actually first and foremost a profilic television character actor, but he's also the son of Rat Pack member. Um, I lost the name already. Joey Bishop. He's one of the lesser known, but he's one of the five members of the Rat Pack. So it's pretty cool that he's in this. Um, and yet he's doing the, the blow at the woman. And I'll tell you what I don't need. I don't need 10 minutes of Michael Madsen being late to a goddamn strip club in my fucking four-hour epic. Like, I'm suddenly reminded of my fucking prior problems of this movie during this sequence here. Because, like, this scene goes on and on and on from everything to him being late to his fucking hat to like 
it, it, it's just a long scene. And trivia, uh, a little tidbit here. The uh, club owner hated Bud's hat like in the movie because the Tarantino didn't like it. That's why. Tarantino yeah. hated it. Michael Madsen refused to not wear it. So he added the hat into the script and rewrote the dialogue to incorporate the hat. That's why we get that tidbit about him hating that fucking hat. Take it off. So then we see Bud go back to his trailer and he looks into the darkness facing his house or his house, his, his trailer, his, his home before going inside. So like, it's like he senses someone out there like Beatrix. Uh, truth be told, she's actually underneath the trailer and is revealed as Bud starts playing a Johnny Cash record inside. So, she could have got him right there as he pokes his head out the window and the dogs are barking. I'm watching this and I'm like, all she has to do is just throw that sword up through the window into his head. Boom, Bud's gone. But no, she just plays along with it. Goes back inside after looking out the window. Like, instead, I had, a, I, I had an issue with this scene initially just because, like, I was like, that was her plan to hide underneath okay. and then run okay, in the door. Like, I don't know. I always had an issue with that. I was like, why would her plan just to be hide underneath, run in the door and charge him? But then I thought about it for a second, rewatching this. Well, it's, Bud it's wasn't right supposed there in front to be. Of you. Well, Bud wasn't supposed to be at home yet. Like, obviously, he got he got let go or got in trouble at work, so he ended up coming home early. So I think her plan was to be waiting in the trailer for him when he got home, you know, off of work later that night. But Bud obviously got in trouble at work for being late, got sent home early, surprised her. So, you know, ipso facto, it was her kind of plan went out the window. So as I thought about it, I guess it made a little bit more sense. I don't know if that's Tarantino's thought process was, but that was kind of what mine was. That's why. Hence the crappy plan of her hiding underneath and then rushing in as he's sitting <laughs> there. And then he blasts her with, with a shotgun. Well, because she even checks underneath the crack of the, of the of the door and she sees that he's sitting right in front of the door. Like she sees it. We see it too. So I, I don't know. I, 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 I do know this much. I know she takes a fucking chest full of rock salt. And she gets blasted the fuck back. Like, <laughs> 20 yards back, she gets blown. And, uh, like you said, he's sitting there anticipating her. And then he insults her by describing how much her chest must be stinging right now from the size of her breasts. And uh, the two exchange spits. They, they spit each other's faces before he injects her in the ass and causes Sister L. I said... Okay, so we know Bud and Bill are brother and bro- or are brothers, but is L sister? I never, Something I never read it as that. I heard the term sister being thrown. I think he calls her sis or something. Something. I heard it and I wrote it down and I just called her the sister and I'm like, wait a minute, didn't really think this one through because I'm sitting here saying it out loud now, and I'm like, that would mean Bill is like, you know, some incestuous shit going incestuous shit going on, you know? Yeah, either a sister or half sister. Yeah. Like uh, like 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 on the fucking crow. Previous Yeah, episode. I don't think I don't think they're related. 
Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but I've never read it as Ellen Butter related. I see. I didn't either until I heard that. I heard that sister word being thrown around. And I'm like, really? We doing this? So, uh, yes, she. Um, they're talking, and uh, he sells her the, the, the her sword for a million dollars. He says, uh. One, she says she says she has it under one con- un- she has a deal or he has a deal under one condition and that is to make her suffer up until her very last breath so he's gonna bury her ass alive and that's the fucking worst like uh, who's the smartest member of the divas and why is it bud smartest member yeah. you don't think bud's the smartest of the deadly international viper assassination assassination oh. squad uh, yeah, I mean, I guess so. Like, he was definitely uh, prepared for it. I guess he had the benefit of uh, kind of having a, you know, like, a knowledge that she was coming for him. So, I mean, I would, yeah, but he definitely had a good plan. I mean, he was definitely, like you mentioned earlier, there's definitely more to Bud. He's definitely smart and talented. I just think he's kind of just not using any of that. I think he's just resigned himself to just being average but yeah he definitely had a good plan i mean maybe that was kind of his part in the group was being maybe more of the planner and thinker i don't know so then the film suddenly cuts to a four three aspect ratio before she's buried for some odd reason like i couldn't find anything on that or why it happens why tarantino chooses to do that but essentially what that means is the screen you know I, i'm watching on a 55 inch and essentially, it, it it turned my widescreen picture frame like square in the middle, like it was a weird aspect ratio. Um, and I'm watching it on HBO Max, so I know it like that's you know wasn't my TV or something like that. And I don't know, it's weird. So he buries her for breaking his brother's heart. He says. And then he makes this bizarre fucking choice to bury her with a flashlight. Like, she starts flipping out, and he puts, like, a, a thing of mace to her eye, like, right up to her eye, like, directly in front of it. And he's like, you can go one of two options, or two choices. You can either have the mace, face full of mace, or eye full of mace, whatever, or the flashlight. So he buries her with a flashlight, and suddenly I'm starting to regret my previous statement about him being the smartest cat of the litter. Because why are we doing this? So it's black <laughs> and white. It's it's black and white again when we see her buried alive, and I, I I can't fucking handle watching stuff like this. Anything including nah. claustrophobic situations, like uh. Yeah, no, me neither. It, the The way he shoots it uh, picks it up very well. Uh, the whole feeling of claustrophobia, because I, I would be the same way. I would be freaking out. Uh, you know, it's just a quick story. I was in the Boy Scouts when I was a kid, and we did uh, caving one time where we had to crawl into this cave, and oh, it was boy. basically you had to army crawl like a hundred, right. like two hundred feet to get into this and pitch black. And I was freaking the fuck out the whole time I was doing it. So I can't imagine being in a casket. Ooh, gives me the willies. You got to imagine, dude, like you got to crawl 200 feet, like you said, back out. So, 
oh, fuck, the emotions and thoughts that was probably, that would have ran through my mind in that situation. Holy shit. Because it's funny real quick. I don't want to get too off topic, but I just, I meant it's, it makes sense to what we're talking about currently. The, I've been watching some videos on YouTube about cave diving and like tragic stuff that happened. Like people that dive down like hundreds of, of thousands of feet or whatever, like in these like really narrow caves and shit in their, in their tanks. And like they're going so deep that they have to have a certain like ratio of like CO2 and oxygen or, or, or whatever they have to use. Otherwise, like, They'll get hysterical and, and, and breathe abnormally and just they'll most likely, you know, die, you know. So, and and I don't know why I do it because it's situations that some of these people that I'm hearing stories about, like, are really fucking, I don't know. Like, I can only imagine how it feels, but I guess what I'm, I guess what I've been doing lately is kind of testing my claustrophobia i guess you can say I, I don't know i don't know why i don't really intend on being in too many claustrophobic situations in my lifetime but uh i don't know who knows just wanted to throw that out there it it, it lined up to what we were talking about in this moment so we cut to chapter eight and it is the uh the cruel tunnelage of pi may so we uh are cut back to bill playing his flute for the bride by a campfire before telling her the story of Pai Mei and his infinite powers. It also tells her a story of when Pai Mei bowed at the Shaolin monks, but not one bowed in return. So the next morning, he appeared at the temple and demanded the temple's head about abbot. The, I'm sorry, the, demanded the, te- the, the temple's head abbot offer him his neck for the insult. And he tried to console him, only to discover Pai Mei was inconsolable. He then massacred all 60 monks at the temple by his fist of white locusts. And this is when we first hear about Pai Mei's five-point palm-exploding heart technique. The deadliest blow of martial arts. Remember that part, kids. He hits you with his fingertips at five different pressure points of your body, and then after you walk away and take five steps, boom, your heart explodes and you fall dead. We also discover he teaches no one this technique. So this is the type of exposition dialogue that I approve of. Tarantino really does a nice job of incorporating this into the story so that later on it makes sense to the viewer. It's not insulting in any way, shape, or form. And it's it's a little bit of foreshadowing, in a sense, or build up, however you want to look at it. But that's probably going to get to it later on once we get to the finale. Like, it's got a whole lot to say compared to my thoughts 18 years ago. And this, this plays a part in that. So, um, anything you want to add to it before we move on? Uh, the only thing I want to add is I just like seeing this earlier version of Beatrix Kiddo because this is, you know, like when her and Bill, you can tell, are in a new relationship. Uh, just like the look on her face, Uma Thurman's face and her excitement. And I guess naive, like I, I just appreciate that, like seeing an earlier version where she's not like this hardened, badass killer where she's like still getting ready to start learning how to be an assassin and still uh, getting used to Bill. I, I just kind of like that flashback aspect of it. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So then we get Bill dropping Beatrix off at the temple, and he tells her that Pai Mei hates Caucasians and despises Americans before taking off in his jeep and leaving her to climb the temple stairs alone. So she gets up there to uh, Pai Mei, and he right away ridicules and torments her during trainer uh, during training. She eventually gains his respect, like this this whole like. At first, he insults her for speaking in Mandarin, and uh, not and then and for knowing Chinese, for knowing Japanese but not Cantonese. And then once she chooses a weapon to fight him with because she bragged about knowing how to use a samurai sword, he kicks the shit out of her, including my favorite line he delivers being, from here you can get an excellent view of my foot and fucking while he's standing on top of her sword and suddenly <laughs> flip kicks her. I love that part. Um, and then after nearly breaking her poor arm, he tells her training begins tomorrow morning because he gets her like in this this twist and she's like... Legit fucking crying because he's got her in so much pain. She's like, he's like, you know, I could break your arm clean off right now, and she's just like, no, don't do that, please. This hurts too much. Just let go. Ow, ow, ow. Tan fei bilikum. Sorry, lady. Fei himat. I already have Um, so what I appreciate most about the sequence is the way Quentin shoots it. Like he actually looks, I'm sorry, the, the film itself, it actually looks and feels like old school 70s, 80s kung fu cinema. Like, yeah, it, def- it's, it definitely does. You see a lot of, a lot of grain. It's, it's, I love it. It's that old film feel. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I am here for this. It looks fucking awesome. Um, and it actually, yeah, uh, Pai Mei. He's based, uh, his, his character Pai Mei, based on Pak Mei, the, or, the originator of the white eyebrow kung fu technique. And according to the legend, Pak Mei was one of the few masters left following the decimation of the Buddhist temples. He later sold out over. He later sold out other masters to save his team and found himself. Uh, and, and I'm sorry. Repeat that sentence. He later sold out 
other masters to save his team and himself during an attack that they had mounted that subsequently went wrong. For this reason, Pac-Mei Kung Fu has always been known as the Forbidden Technique, and Pac-Mei has been a villainous figure in Chinese folklore and film for hundreds of years. Um, and it's funny too because I've never actually looked at Pai Mei as a villain in this movie. Uh, you know, the whole legend of folklore stands true, but for some reason, you know, he 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 treats Uma like complete dog shit. But you know, I think that's kind of I don't know if I'd call it tough love, but it's it's tough something. Don't you agree? Yeah, I mean, obviously, he shows her at one point the five finger. Um, I forget what it's called, but the five finger. Um, uh, Death punch. I don't know. I'm talking about. I'm thinking of the, the band five now. Finger death punch. <laughs> thinking of the band now. Um, but obviously, it's the five grows, point palm exploding heart technique. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> obviously, he shows her that, so he must have some level of respect for, her and you know, she must earn it as they go. I just think he's a hardened old asshole, pretty much. And yeah, he's gonna. Um, train some people especially i guess because it also keeps some company he's kind of lonely like they mentioned in the movie uh but i wouldn't say he's like a, a terrible guy he's just kind of a old curmudgeon who can also rip your eye out or rip your arm off if he wants to if he feels insulted pretty much so as long as you don't insult him you're probably fine yeah i agree uh, let's see, one more fact here. Quentin Tarantino originally intended to only have Pai Mei's lips speaking Cantonese while having his voice being dubbed in English uh, by Tarantino himself, uh, imitating a bad, do job, a, a bad dub job. Like I said, Tarantino was going to provide the voice, but in the end, Tarantino abandoned that idea, and Pai Mei, who was played by Gordon Liu, who's also the leader of the Crazy 88s in Volume 1, speaks in his own voice. Did you know this? Same actor as the leader of the Crazy 88s? Yeah, I didn't know this back when I first saw it, but I knew it uh, now. Look at an IMDb. I knew that because him and um, was it Michael Parks come back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was a good decision not going with a dub. I think the dub actually would have fit better if they did it somewhere in the first volume, just because that one's just so much more fun and more of a throwback in my opinion. than this movie is this one just has the more serious tone. So I think it was a good cut. I think it was better having his actual voice in it, not Quentin Tarantino dubbed over. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely do. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Then we get the training montage because we fucking love ourselves. A good old montage, the film effect. Uh, so we get shots of her being scoffed at, being ridiculed, fighting to break a piece, a thick piece of wood with one hand, and it's the wood that should fear your hand and not the other way around, as uh, Pai Mei says before leaving her to do so for the day. Yeah, we also get that beautiful shot of her shadow figure like practicing in front of a blood red backdrop during this montage. I really liked. She's forced to use her mangled hand to use uh, chopsticks to eat rice in this next scene. Um, and then we cut back to the bride inside the coffin that Bud buried her in. And she eventually uses this technique that she learned. And then uh, she slips out of the belt that's um, holding her feet together. 
and pulls up her boot to reveal a razor blade that she uses to cut the rope that's tying her hands together. Then then she starts using those hands to break free. She eventually gets the, uh, yeah, she eventually breaks free and then crawls up a ridiculous amount of dirt. I think she crawls up like fucking 50 feet of dirt, it looks like. Like, just power fucking crawling upward in a ridiculous moment. I mean, it looks awesome, but it's ridiculous. And, like, obviously, it's, 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 you know, blown out of proportion, you know, for humorous reasons. In real life, if you were buried more than a couple feet, you couldn't get out. Like, if you were buried six feet like a normal person, there's no way. It would be like you're sitting under tons of dirt, essentially, at that point. There'd be no way for you to get out. But, um, I just, I did just want to mention one thing. Did you notice the boots that she's wearing in the scene? It's the same boots as, um, whose boots are they, Corey? I forgot. I know, but I don't know. I forgot. Michael Madsen's boots from Reservoir Dogs when he tortures Ah, the uh, cop. When he tortures Eddie. um, Eddie Marsh. Eddie, yep. Yep, Eddie same Nash. Boots. I'm sorry, not not Mars Nash. Eddie Nash. Yeah, same boots. That's right. That's what I read. Um, so yeah, she gets out of there. Ridiculous, fucking like she's just flying upward. Breaks. Then her hand comes up like she's a zombie. Uh, and it's a George a. Romero movie. Um, and yeah, she escapes the grave. And get some coffee afterwards, or get some yeah. water. I mean, goes into the <laughs> diner. <laughs> this fuck, this shot of her like running across the street, like she's now free and she walks over with dirt just falling from her, and then she asks for a glass of water. So, just she's literally brown all around from this dirt while she's in there. It's you know, funny stuff. So we're cutting to chapter nine. L and I. And Elle's driving the buds like they discussed earlier. And it's a pretty badass shot. And I'm a fan of this 1980 Pontiac Firebird Trans Am uh, convertible that she's riding in. And she gets there with Bud's uh, Millie as the film transitions to the bride walking across the desert. And then she uh, watches Elle arrive at Bud's from a distance. Um, In the trailer... Bud tells Elle about his Texas funeral for Beatrix before she goes and inspects the bride's Hattori Hanzo sword. And can we talk about this sloppy-ass way that Bud is making margaritas in the kitchen here? Just carelessly uh, using his hand, holding the blender to uh, open cabinets and shit. Like, getting his drink all over the place. Like, just carelessly spilling everything that he just made. Like, he gets, like, half of it in there and shit. Like, (laughs) just swinging shit open and closing stuff with the one hand. The hand that he's holding this cup in. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he lives like a pig. Yeah, I mean, just look at the trailer. (laughs) He obviously doesn't care. So then he sits down to uh, count his cash, and inside the briefcase is a black mamba, which bites him in the face a few times before he collapses. I like how he jumps back, scared shitless, like it like genuinely surprised him, which it didn't, but it, it just gives me the impression he comes off like that's what happened. Um, no, that's how you that's how you would be, and the um uh, the makeup uh looks good in this spot, like they make oh, his face all swollen. And he's all sweaty. Yeah. And Michael Madison does a good job. He, he doesn't 
talk the rest of the time like he sells it like he looks scared he looks like he's yeah. having trouble breathing like he, he does a great job looking like he's poisoned right there and then as he's dying Elle's describing how she got him and 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 exactly what the bite to the face does and she says it brings in paralysis within 20 minutes but then the pain's going to be gargantuan and then she tells him that she's gonna she feels regret because the greatest warrior she's ever deserved she's ever seen deserves better than to die from a piece of shit like bud <laughs> thanks a bunch Sorry, bud. That was rude of me, wasn't it? Bud, I'd like to introduce my friend, the Black Mamba. Black Mamba? This is Bud. You know, before I picked that little fella up, I looked him up on the internet. Fascinating creature, the Black Mamba. Listen to this. In Africa, the saying goes, in the bush, an elephant can kill you, a leopard can kill you, and a black mamba can kill you. But only with the mamba, and this has been true in Africa since the dawn of time, is death sure. Hence its handle, death incarnate. Pretty cool, huh? Its neurotoxic venom is one of nature's most effective poisons, acting on the nervous system causing paralysis. The venom of a black mamba can kill a human being in four hours, if, say, bitten on the ankle or the thumb. However, a bite to the face or torso can bring death from paralysis within 20 minutes. Now, you should listen to this, because this concerns you. The amount of venom that can be delivered from a single bite can be gargantuan. Mm. You know, I've always liked that word, gargantuan. I so rarely have an opportunity to use it in a sentence. If not treated quickly with antivenom, 10 to 15 milligrams can be fatal to human beings. However, the black mamba can deliver as much as 100 to 400 milligrams of venom from a single bite. Now, in these last agonizing minutes of life you have left, let me answer that question you asked earlier more thoroughly. Right at this moment, the biggest R I feel is regret. Regret that maybe the greatest warrior I have ever met met her end at the hands of a bushwhacking, scrub, elky piece of shit like you. 
Insult to injury. After he finally dies, she takes the money, then receives a call from Bill and tells him the bride killed him by placing a black mamba in his trailer. She then tells Bill that be- about Beatrix Kiddo's final resting place and how it can bring him pure happiness. She's like, go smoke some pot or something and I'll be home shortly, dear. <laughs> so... <laughs> This scene here with the mamba and everything and, and, and the swerve, it's inspired, it's somewhat borrowed from the 1981 film Venom, in which Susan George opens a crate containing a black mamba that bites her right in the face, completely by surprise, just like in this movie. Um, so yeah, Elle goes to leave, opens that door. And she's greeted with a flying jump kick from Beatrix, and the two have themselves a good old-fashioned fight inside of Bud's trailer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of this fight just because, you know, you've had, like, we've had the fights in the first one with the swords yep. and the huge open space, so obviously this one's so different, being in a small trailer, can't even use the sword, like Al's trying to use the Hattori Hanzo, can't even pull it out, so it's just a straight-up fist fight. Uh, between these two blondes so i i just really appreciate it and they're just smashing through because you would like it's just a shitty trailer like you could just smash through walls and that's essentially what they're doing the whole time so i really dug it even though it's a shorter fight scene it is just different like at least it's different than what we've seen before in the first movie in this one yeah exactly um so Beatrix eventually finds Bud's uh, scribe, the Tori Hanzo sword that he said he pawned, and also reveals that she killed. Elle says that she killed Paime by poisoning his fish heads, which was he said earlier this fish heads spare food, and then in retribution, and in, 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 yeah, retribution for him plucking out her eye after she called him a miserable old fool. So then the sequence then ends with Elle's remaining eye being pulled out. And then squished by uh, the bride, uh, Beatrix's bare foot. Yeah, exactly. I fucking hate eyeball horror. No thank you. Um, but the flailing around, that's funny shit. That's good <laughs> stuff. And it's completely yeah. off script and, and uh, ad-libbed from her. It was a um, gag. Like, she did it, didn't... Um, she wanted to she make QT just, laugh. Yeah, she, she wanted, wanted to make him make- laugh. She just wanted to make him laugh and he kept it in. And I think it works well, even though it can be, it's like over the top a little bit. But when you think about it, like Elle and Beatrix relationship, Elle's kind of like it got the little sister complex. Like Beatrix, it, Beatrix is like this like badass, the best in the world assassin. Bill's in love with her. And then you got Elle who's like good, but obviously not quite as good and has this inferiority complex. So the fact that Beatrice just pricked her eye out, beat her again. Now she's flailing around like, uh, like you would, if you were having a sibling rivalry and a little brother or sister lost and would just have a tantrum. That's kind of how I viewed it. Like it's like two siblings almost, even though they're not related. Uh, and now she's having a tantrum because Beatrix just kicked her ass again and just showed why she's better. So that's kind of how I read it, and I think it fits pretty well if you kind of look at it like that. 
Yeah, it kind of sort of ties into um, something that I found out, and it's kind of lengthy, so I saved it for trivia tidbits. Um, but yeah, I guess you can wait for my response to everything you just said, which makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. A little bit later. So, um, yeah, Bride walks out of the trailer, and then the door just randomly slams itself shut right behind her as she walks out. And... I love how this part has so much build up to where you think that these two are going to have like an epic sword fight, but then ultimately nothing actually happens because Elle ends up getting her final eye removed before anything can also occur. Um, yeah. I, oh, okay. I guess I did add my note that I was just teasing for trivia tidbits to this part. So yeah, Uma Thurman, uh, I guess this is a response to you, Thurman and uh, Daryl Hannah, they did not get along with each other during filming. So um, if this information that I got is to be correct, uh, reportedly they were instructed uh, hotel and cinema staff to ensure that they were kept separate from one another during the press tour for the first film and uh, once again at odds, the two of them at the screening at the Cannes Film Festival, and then uh, ordered separate areas to be created at the after-show party that they so they couldn't clash. So during the 2005 MTV Movie Awards, only Daryl Hannah attended. Uma's uh, absence was conspicuous, but considering that she had the previous year uh, collected the award for her fight with uh, basically everyone in, in the crazy 88s in volume one. She got the award for that. And uh, yeah, so uh, let's move on to last chapter face to face. And we cut to Acuna, Mexico where the bride's driving down a narrow dirt road to meet retired pimp Esteban. <laughs> Like most men who never knew their father, Bill collected father figures. The first was Esteban Vajeo. Esteban was a pimp and a friend of Bill's mother. He ran a brothel in Acuna, Mexico for over 50 years. His army, the Acuna Boys, made up of the fatherless offspring of his whores, ran Acuna. He ran the Acuna Boys. Now at the age of 80, it would be this retired gentleman of leisure who could point me in Bill's direction. Senor Esteban Vajeo? Yes. May I join you? Only on the condition that you call me Esteban. May I join you, Esteban? Please. Yes. I speak a little Spanish if you prefer. No, 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 no. I prefer English. I haven't spoken in a while. But I would relish the opportunity to converse with such a pretty companion as yourself. It's my pleasure to be in the company of such a fine gentleman as yourself. I must warn you, young lady. I am susceptible to flattery. How may I be a service to you?
Where's Bill? Who bears a striking resemblance to Earl McGraw. That was my <laughs> note. <laughs> um, Esteban, has he was a friend of Bill's mother and took him in as a father figure. And now that she's there to find out where Bill is, eventually he gives her Bill's location, saying that he would want him to do so. Um, and that's basically what happens. It's kind of a long, stretched-out scene, but it's it's kind of like the um, calm before the storm, before she gets the bills and all that shit happens, because uh, something else I totally forgot. Once she gets to, you know, the final act of this movie where she encounters Bill and, and her daughter for the first time, it is a lot longer than I remember it being. So, um, did you notice the the this brothel? How about we talk? How, no, I'm sorry. Anything about this, or did you read anything about? Because that's where that he is is in a brothel. Yeah, there's women that are. I heard the extras are going. all like really um, whores. Like I I heard that part in the yeah. scene. These are real, ah, uh-huh. um, yeah. The, the 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 brothel was the last scene in the movie to be shot. It was filmed at a Mexican brothel, and all the the female extras, uh, they were sex extras. They were they were sex workers that worked there. So, how are we feeling about an American actor playing the part of a Spanish character with an accent and all? Well, I mean, I don't have a huge problem with it. I I know people say whitewashing. I don't know. I, the way I look at it, it's it's all make believe. It's all pretend in movies. So, to me, unless you're doing something very egregious, I don't usually have a problem. But I will say, in Quentin Tarantino's defense, he did try to cast Ricardo Montalban originally, but uh, I I don't I don't remember why. But for whatever reason, Montalban I don't know if it's scheduling or what it was. He couldn't do. It. So then they had Michael Parks just kind of step in and read and Quentin Tarantino liked it so much. They ended up just keeping Parks as uh, this character. So he did try to cast it. Quentin Tarantino did. It just didn't work out. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Um, we'll see what we got here. So yeah, my issue with it, uh, follow what I just said. Um, my issue here, I, I mean, I really don't overall have a problem with it. Although... Tarantino could have easily cast someone like Ruben Blades or even Cheech Marin in this role, and it would have been the same. You know, it would have been it, it, actually the, both those two men could have elevated the role a little bit. No disrespect to Michael Parks, rest in peace, love the man. Uh, but yeah, it, it I don't know because then he's talking about how like you know he, he's wants to you know do work tidy up his english but he hasn't spoken in english in a while and he prefers it yada yada you know they had an interaction together right before she goes to see bill um and then the let's see here yeah he calls over this prostitute with a gnarly sore on her lip and then gives her a handkerchief she has a cleft palate that's what that is it's like a third world country thing. Like kids are born with that. Yeah. It's a cleft palate. It, and like here kids have it, uh, are born with it sometimes, but in a lot of first world countries, there's an easy surgery to fix it. 
but obviously in third world countries, right. there's no surgery. So it just gets worse and nasty looking like that. Huh. All right. Um, and finally here, my tidbit uh, for this scene is the story that Esteban's telling her uh, about Bill in the movie theater sucking his thumb. That's a story Kurt Russell told Quentin Tarantino. Kurt did the same thing at a drive-in theater when he was a boy when he saw Marilyn Monroe on screen. Hmm. So, um, I really like this sh- shot of her driving to Bill and everything's black and white except for her, her car, and yeah. her symbol. Yeah. Or her sword, I mean. I like the throwback shot, too. And I just want to mention... Um, the car she's driving um, is called a Carmen Ghia. And it means a lot to me because my late grandfather, John, had a Carmen Ghia uh, convertible. We, he always drove it down to the city. Yeah, he always, yep. he let me drive it a few times when I was older and able to drive. I just always loved that car. Just a cool, classic car. Not worth any money. They're not valuable, per se. Uh, but that's what she's driving in, in um, these scenes where, you know, in the black and white, it's a Carmen Ghia. And that always just stood out to me. So, yeah, that's that's one for you, uh, uh, Grandpa, my late Grandpa John. Yeah, I remember that, definitely. So, yeah, it all cuts back to color as she arrives at the hotel where Bill is and enters with a gun, eventually finding Bill outside on the patio with their daughter, Bibi pretending to be shot and killed. Beatrix plays dead too after BB pretends shoots her with a toy gun before the two embrace. Freeze, mommy. Bang, bang. Oh. Oh. She got us, BB. Mom got us. Oh, I'm dying. Oh, I'm dying. Fall down, sweetheart. They shot us. But little did Quick Draw Kiddo know that little BB was only playing possum due to the fact that she was impervious to bullets. Impervious to bullets, Mommy. Hey, get back down there. You're playing possum. So, as the smirking killer advanced on what she thought was a bullet-ridden corpse, that's when little BB fired. You're dead, Mommy. So, die. Oh! Bibi. B.B. has a late night snack before bed while Bill tells a story of B.B. stepping on her goldfish, Emilio. And so he taught her about life and death. So, um, and one other thing I noticed before she goes to his place, we still got like 50 minutes left. Just want to throw that out there. And, you know, we're already, like, in the final scene, pretty much, because it's just the rest of the film is basically going to take place in this hotel, which is only, like, three big rooms, mainly. Um, yeah, which I was okay with. I oh, mean, me initially, too. when I was watching this, I thought, 
you know, initially while watching this, I was like, you know, obviously I didn't have a timer in the theater, but I was like, oh, cool. We're getting the bills. Like it's going to pay off. And there's just going to be this like fight at the end or something, which obviously that's not, it pays off, but that's not at all what happens with the fight. But I do just want to mention the scene when Uma Thurman first sees her daughter. Excellent scene. Just Uma Thurman, her acting spot because she's so happy but shocked and angry at bill like it's just like every emotion right there and then on bill's side david carradine he set this whole thing up with these guns because he knew she was going to come in blazing like ready to kill him so he had this set up well okay well you know we'll have play guns she'll have possibly a real gun or weapon and we'll turn this into a play thing instead of her killing me right away thing you know, so on Bill's side, he clearly has thought this out very well, <laughs> you know, for when she comes in that they do this play thing. So he's obviously uh, gaming the situation. Um, so but this whole scene at the beginning is just awesome. Like it, rewatching it, I forgot how powerful like oh, just yeah. the Thurman entire is scene, scene, just her emotion is, is top and it comes through so book. well. It, it really is. It's a. It is so much better than I remember it being. It's just, yeah. So anyway, he uh, puts her to bed and tells her that he shot mommy for real. And uh, after, and how after it happened, he was very sad. And that's when he learned some things can never be undone. Speedy asked her mother what happened and if it hurts, and she says it doesn't hurt anymore, and how it made her sleep, but now she's wide awake. So Bill suggests that she go watch a video of, of the Shaolin assassins before going to sleep, and they and so they do. I don't know. I, he, like, I don't know. How could Beatrix, like, be so naive in this situation. Like clearly Bill's plotting while she's putting her little girl to sleep. I know. Uh, yeah. I don't, I, I think she just wants to spend any time she can with her daughter. Cause think about it. You know, we're both parents. Think about, we never got to spend any time with our kid for the first four years of their life. Really. I think in her mind, I think in her mind, she figures if I go out there and face him now, I might die. So at least I'll have this time with my daughter if he kills me, I think that's kind of the way she was looking at it. She just wants and craves that time with her daughter so much that she's willing to just kind of let Bill be in the background and set aside her revenge for a little bit just to get that time with her daughter. And I, I totally understand that because it's just, you know, I'd be conflicted like that as well. Yeah. Um, Beatrix goes out to the living room area. Where Bill's admitting her, or Bill's admiring her sword, and he proposes that they wait till the morning to fight. But then she goes to her, uh, her sword suddenly, and he shoots at her and threatens to shoot her in the in the kneecap. I hear that's quite painful, he says. Suddenly, she's shot with a dart by Bill that's uh, filled with true serum, and he then interrogates her because he still has questions that need to be answered he says and he asked um, he asked her if she's feeling any euphoria and she tells him no so we then cut to like this two minute monologue uh, about superheroes and their alter egos 
but born Superman, uh, no, but Superman's a true superhero because he has, he was born Superman, um, he then brings up her wedding, she could have been Arlene Plimpton, yeah, she could have been Arlene Plimpton, Plimpton, there you go, I knew I'd get it out, Arlene Plimpton, yeah, Jesus, okay, um, Plimpton. Plimpton. It's not that hard to say. Arlene Plimpton. <laughs> it is at midnight. God damn it! When I've been working all day, but she was still. Bo- but she was born Beatrix Kiddo, and every morning would still be her. He's calling her a natural born killer and insulting the life that she tries settling down for. And then the questions begin. So he said, at first he asked, "Did you really think the life of El Paso was gonna work?" She says, no, but she would have had BB. And then he says, question number two, all the people she killed getting to him felt good, right? And she says, yes, every single one of them. Now comes the $64,000 question. Why did you run away from me with my baby? Like, it then cuts to her taking her test and then... Like she's attacked by an assassin named Lisa Wong that's been sent for. And after a ridiculous five-minute affair, she leaves after telling her congratulations after finding out that she's pregnant. <laughs> I mean... I know, I love that. She's, she's like, congratulations to the blowing-through door. Yeah, it's just yeah. so funny. Uh, and, I, and it just illustrates it well. Like, you, you know, being... Beatrix's uh, thought process, like me being a mom is incompatible with me being an assassin. And this whole ridiculous scene is evidence of that, like of the pregnancy test and congratulations. It just shows it doesn't work together. If she's going to be a mom, she can't be an assassin anymore, essentially. So yeah, Bill assumed that she was dead. So he was hunting down the people who were responsible and discovered that she was alive, pregnant and about to get hitched. And he actually says that he must have re- overreacted a little bit. He's a killer, murdering bastard, and there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. So the two begin to fight, but then before anything can really happen, boom! Five-point palm exploding heart technique. Bill's like, oh shit, he taught you that too? You sly dog, why you say something? So... Surprised that Pi taught her the move, he reconciles with her, then falls dead as he walks away in the background. You and I have unfinished business. Baby, you ain't kidding. Plan A taught you the five-point palm exploding heart technique. Of course he did. Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. Because... 
You're not a bad person. You're a terrific person. You're my favorite person. But every once in a while, you can be a real cunt. as a sword fight on a moonlit beach between the two, featuring her clad in her wedding dress. Uh, When the production ran long, Harvey Weinstein insisted Quentin Tarantino cut the scene back. All that remains is Bill's brief reference to such a fight with uh, Beatrix. uh, I'm sorry, while Beatrix sits on the sofa, and the film's poster shows her in the wedding dress, or at least one of the posters does, holding the sword. Um, so yeah, 2004, I'm watching this movie, I'm like, yeah, how are you gonna wrap this up? Epic conclusion to this two-film affair, it's gonna be a fucking banger, hell yeah, hell yeah. You tapped him on the chest and he fell back and died? What? <laughs> um, yeah, just, let's talk about how underwhelming it was, and now, 18 years later, like, shines a whole new light on things. You know, for for one, this whole entire death scene's been foreshadowed and, like, built up towards throughout the movie. And I never saw it before. I really noticed it until now, my second viewing. <laughs> but it's one of the things I noticed watching it now that I didn't really pick up on before is the fact that you know, Bill's death scene, or uh, Bill's death is pretty much, like, built up towards throughout the whole movie. Like, it's teased, hinted at, talked about, discussed, but we just didn't know it was Bill that was going to end up receiving it in the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know. I, I, I won't lie. I was slightly disappointed the first time I watched this. I, think I we thought all were. it was going to end with a bang. Yeah. You know, and then the heart, the, the, Five finger death punch. I'm gonna keep calling it that. I know it's not that. Stop. Don't don't change. Um. So, you know, I didn't hate that part. 
it didn't take away from the whole movie. Like I said, I've always enjoyed this movie, but at the time I was a little disappointed. I think this movie might've won over better with some audiences if it did have that big ending. But I think the ending we got actually suits the film fairly well. Like you said, it was built up mm. and it makes sense. I mean, she's not fucking around. She wants to kill Bill. She's going to break out her biggest move to kill Bill. You know, she's not going to fuck around with a sword on the beach, <laughs> you know, just do it right then and there. Because right. obviously, obviously he's scheming. So it's like, you know, you might not even get to the beach with a sword. You know, he might pull something else out of his ass. So. I don't necessarily blame her for breaking that out and just ending it right there. So I, I'm okay with it. I think it still would have been cool if they had something bigger at the end, if Quinn would have got that in. But I think the ending suited the film, and I still think it's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Beatrix leaves with BB to start a new life. And we cut to the next morning, and BB's watching TV after enjoying some Lucky Charms while Beatrix is laying on the bathroom floor crying and being thankful for this new chance of a new life. She then goes out to hold BB, and the scene, we see the text, the lioness has rejoined her cub and all is right in the jungle. The end. Although... There is a weird random outtake that serves as a post-credit scene. It's just her pulling out an eyeball from one of the crazy 88 members in volume one with Tarantino yelling cut and Uma saying she wants to do it again. That's it. That's our post-credit stinger for this movie. It's a fucking outtake. All right. Let's talk trivia tidbits. (laughs) The ones we didn't bring up. Now remember that because the more you know. So the pussy wagon, it's not in this movie. You know that? Yeah, I know there was a scene that was cut um, due to time. It was like uh, Gogo's sister for revenge or something like that. And she destroyed the wagon. And that's why it, originally it wasn't supposed to be in it. For that reason, it was supposed to get destroyed, but they cut the scene. But uh, they just threw in a line that it broke down, essentially. Am I right about that? Wait, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not ignoring you. I was just kind of going over, glossing over one thing real quick before you were talking. Say it one more time about the uh, the car. Originally, it was supposed to be a scene where Gogo's sister, Yo. you know, Gogo that she killed in the first one, her sister was supposed to attack and like mess up the pussy wagon so she didn't have it in this one. Well, they cut that scene, but they had to explain why she didn't have it. So there was just that throwing line about the pussy wagon breaking down. Yeah, you're right, Corey, exactly. So the, there was a chapter, like you said, called Yuki's Revenge that was cut uh, to accommodate the new chapter, Massacre of Two Pines, that details the attack at the bride in the beginning, yada yada. So an outline of the chapter was to have uh, Yuki Yabora, who was Gogo's sister, seek vengeance from the bride for killing her, her sister. Yuki was to be played by... Ko Shabaska, Shab- I can't fucking pronounce that. Just skip over that. Uh, she was going to play one of the co-stars from uh, Battle Royale. Uh, speaking of, the bride doesn't have the pussy wagon because Tarantino, you know, in the movie, Tarantino left it home. However, like you said in the script, Yuki was going, was uh, 
It was after she killed Vernita Green, Vivica A. Fox. She was going to go outside and discover that the, the, the pussy wagon was like destroyed. And she even alludes to it being, you know, it didn't make it. It got destroyed or whatever at the end of the actual film. So uh, that does at least get brought up. So uh, the kill count. I think I mentioned it in the last episode or the body count or whatever. Yeah, it's three. <laughs> very, just a very solid three compared to all those from the first movie, which I already forgot what that kill count was. Um, I know it was a lot, though. Um, More than three. Yeah. <laughs> so that gorgeous shot of uh, the overhead shot of uh, Uma driving to Bill's final resting place, uh, what have you. It was, there was actually a big uproar about what happened because it was an outtake. Do you remember hearing about this? I had the story. I'm about to read it, but I'm asking you if you remember it first. No, I don't remember anything about that. All right, so this was around the time of Me Too and everything and the Weinsteins or, or Harvey, uh, more importantly, being taken to court finally and getting his comeuppance or, or, or his victims at least getting their comeuppance. So in 2008, or, I'm sorry, 2018, Uma Thurman posted footage online of the car accident that occurred in 2002 while filming this scene. At the time, Thurman had voiced her reservations about filming a scene without, you know, her stunt performer. They got into a fight because she said that you know, her stunt performer should have been doing this, and he said, no, it's just a drive scene. There's no stunt involved that we can't get the stunt double. Not to mention, even if we tried... She's not working that day. So, um, yeah, the since the scene was not considered to be, you know, a stunt or stunt coordinator, yada, yada, Tarantino persuaded her to shoot the scene herself. And while driving the, the, the very narrow dirt road, there was an unexpected turn in the, in the road that caused her to lose control and, you know, crashed into a tree. Uh, leaving her with a concussion and damaged knees, she says. Uh, she tried to obtain the footage as proof, but Harvey Weinstein refused to release it unless she signed a document that would release the company from any liability. Years later, Tarantino finally gave her the footage and helped her come forward in the wake of the multiple sexual relation, or I'm sorry, uh, assault charges against Weinstein so yeah that was a mouthful a lot happened that you know pertains to all of this um Bill offers up a nod to his uh, the Wu-Tang clan after interrogating the bride with the truth serum he interrogates her and refers to her as a natural born killer and a, re- a renegade killer B both of which are references to pro- the projects from the Wu-Tang clan and Rizzo who also, like I said, wrote the film, or wrote the, the music for the film. Um, well, not coming up. The, let's see. And finally, although he's famously skilled and profilic, uh, profile killer, the character of Bill kills nobody on screen. The only person he wounds is Beatrix, and she survives. Did you ever notice that? For as ruthless as yeah, he is, I mean, he never kills a single person. Yeah, thinking about it now, yeah, it's pretty wild, sense. huh? So, yeah, all right, 
Let's head on over to the box over for seats. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. Uh, the film had its premiere at the Cinema Dome on April 8th, 2004, before being released to the masses on April 15th. I'm sorry, April 16th, 2004, from Miramax Films. The theater count was 29.71, opening weekend first place, of course, 25.6 million. Second weekend drop off, a steep 59.4%, coming in third place with 10.4 million. Total gross, $152.2 million against a $30 million budget. Keep in mind that budget was to be shared with volume one, so it's more like 15. Does that make sense? Let's jump on over to the critics' corner and see what they had to say. Alright, so Kill Bill Volume 2 has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 84% based on 244 reviews. With the critical consensus saying, Kill Bill Volume 2 adds extra plot and dialogue to the action-heavy exploits of its predecessor, while still managing to deliver a suitably hard-hitting sequel. It's got a meta score of 83 out of 100 based on 41 reviews, a cinema score of A-, and another 4-star rating from Ebes. He is quoted as saying, put the, pu- put the two parts together, and Tarantino has made a masterful saga that celebrates the martial arts genre while kidding it, loving it, and transcending it. This is all one film, and now that and now we see it whole. It's greater than its two parts. In 2009, he named Kill Bill as one of his 20 best films of the decade. Uh, Adam Rayner from New York Magazine said, I've lost my sweet tooth for slice and dice escapism, and perhaps this is why I felt the need to see it in movies that simply don't glamorize or fetishize or supernaturalize brutality. I like that quote. Uh, David Denby from The New Yorker said, The pop encyclopedist and video store genius has become a megalomaniac, and the exhilarating filmmaker he might have been is disappearing last. Guess he wasn't a fan. Glenn Kenny from Premiere Magazine gave it 4 out of 4, saying this is the movie of head-spinning tech richness. Uh, let's see here. Joe Blow gave it 7 out of 10. Meanwhile... How about Baltimore Sun? Uh, they gave it four stars and said, if Kill Bill Volume 1 was bloody exhilarating, Volume 2 is bloody great, and as a bonus, not nearly so bloody. All right, let's move over to music from the motion picture. Music from the motion picture. So more of the same, like we discussed last episode for Volume 1, Rosa's back doing the music for this go-around with the addition of Robert Rodriguez. Uh, Although the funny story here I'm reading that I've got from numerous sources, not just one, is that Rodriguez did uh, the music for a dollar. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't hear about that. Just a buck. That's funny. Yeah, did it it for a buck. 
And in return, Tarantino would uh, do uh, direct a segment of Sin City, also for a buck. So you know, we know these two guys are like you know besties in Hollywood almost and shit, and they always do the helping hand in hands in each other's projects and whatnot. Tarantino himself spliced up the uh, writing. Did I think he officially wrote from dusk till dawn? Uh, but anyway, he's in it as a major character. And so, and, and other other films for Rubes uh, and, and other stuff. So, uh, yeah, the two of them. Uh, and that's really all I had for music in this movie. Because we talked about, you know, Riza in the last episode. And he's back for this. It's more the same. Not a knock. Like I said, I expect that. It's, it's consistency because, again, this is supposed to be one whole movie. Uh, so getting all that out of the way, let's move over to pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. Alright, pros for me. The dialogue and flow... So much about this movie worked for me this time around as opposed to my last viewing. The film grain, how it's shot by Robert Richard, yeah, Robert Richardson. Uh, the music, once again, talking about that, Riza, Robert Rodriguez. Uh, this is a very, 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 very well edited film, thanks in part to Sally Menke. Um, and finally, this is a continuation that strategically takes its time and the payoff, while anticlimactic to some, is great to others, including myself. The film builds up towards that strike on Bill a lot more than I remember it doing. You know, I, I mentioned that before. So, um, and yeah, the acting as well. I mean, there's other stuff I didn't write down, obviously, that's clearly, you know, a pro. Uh, that getting all that out of the way. How about you? What are your pros? Um, so a, a lot of my pros are similar to the first volume again, cause it's like covering two different halves, but, uh, the music is awesome in this one again, by the RZA. Uh, you know, obviously this, this half is more leaning Western, but it's still very similar to the first half and still awesome. Uh, still really stands out. Uh, my other pro is, like you said, the cinematography and just look like, it, you know, just the different parts of the movie just harken back to different things like having the training scene just look like an old kung fu movie and having the bud scene just look like a Western. Like it, it's just all put together very well and it looks authentic. Um, one of my biggest pros is just the fact that you get to fill in so much backstory in this movie. Uh, you know, you get to see the relationship between uh, Beatrix and Bill and you get that all filled in. Um, I just love seeing more of the characters and, you know, cause the first movie is just this quick uh, crazy revenge film. You get characterization, but you get so much more in this movie. And right. I just love the fact that you get to see a lot more. The relationship between Bill and Beatrix is awesome. Um, mm -hmm. I'm glad they took their time to set it up in this uh, movie. Um, my last pro is just the cast and acting is awesome. Everybody in this movie holds their own between Michael Madsen and Daryl Hannah. Uh, you know, everybody just plays their part to a T. And then obviously uh, my last mention is David Carradine. 
um you know he almost steals the movie for me he is just so great he's like a mad scientist actor Mm -hmm. oh yeah Uh, he's just so unique uh and pulls it off so well i believe that he is the head of like this huge uh you know deadly uh viper assassin gang and i buy it 100 percent um yep so that's all the pros for me all right uh so my cons um I can see where fans of volume one could easily be turned off by this as they're, you know, night and day films. So there's that. Uh, some some useless scenes. Like, I'm looking at you, strip club sequence. Uh, much less action than volume one. Uh, Michael Parks didn't need to show up as a, a, a like a separate, like, Michael Parks didn't need to show up as a separate, you know, retired Spanish pimp. Didn't need that. No, thank you. Um, and that's really my, my, my main qualms about this movie. Honest to God. Uh, do you have anything? about? I'm sure you have some issues with it. Let's talk about them. Yeah. I mean, my main thing is it just feels a little lopsided. You know, I understand the first half was supposed to be the action-packed revenge movie, and this one is supposed to be a slower take and fill in the gaps. I still think it could have used a little bit more in it. I mean, maybe cut out some of the scenes that are in it. Like you said, like we didn't necessarily need the Michael Park scene. Not that it's bad, but we didn't necessarily need that. Um, or the whole Bud scene at the strip club. And put in the um, Go-Go sister revenge scene. I would have liked just maybe another quick fight in there, just a little bit more action, just so it doesn't feel so lopsided between the first one and this one. I'm not saying it's got to be like all action in both of them. Cause I appreciate this movie for what it is, but just looking back at it, it right. just feels a little bit too off for me. So my biggest comment was maybe add just like one more little fight scene just to make it feel a little bit more even, but that was it for me. All right. Well, Let's talk Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? I said for me, I... Wait. You know what? No, I'm sorry. Finger looking good. (laughs) Finger looking good. (laughs) All right, so for me, it's the last chapter, honestly. it's, It's a slow burn, but it's... uh. It, it it takes his time and it's uh it, it it's just really good stuff. Um, it, it, like I said, it involves a technique that she uses. Uh, that you know, like again, I can get why people get all there's outrage still eighteen years later from people probably about there not being a big fight between herself and Bill, but uh. I'd argue that the technique she uses, uh, even though it's quick and just, I could film a scene like that. So kind of, like I said before, I think I used the term twice, anticlimactic. It's the truth. Like it's, 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 it is what it is. Um, it, it, it is, there's plenty of build up to it. It makes sense. Just, you know, pay attention to the, pay attention to the movie and you'll appreciate it more. Uh, so yeah, the whole last chapter. And, and also basically what you said earlier about the chemistry uh, between these two. It it really adds another notch to the scene itself and it really helps elevate it some more, you know. 
And uh, yeah, it's one to acknowledge that as well. So you're not alone there. Uh, how about you, Corey? What's your uh, finger looking good? Uh, I mean, of course, it has to be the final chapter, the end scene. Um, you know, just the whole rest of this movie and the first volume were building up to it. So, you know, I was just waiting and waiting and waiting. And looking back on it, it really didn't disappoint. You know, I got what I wanted. You know, you got the confrontation with Bill. It just might not have been exactly what I thought. Um, but, yeah, just when the scene begins with Uma Thurman acting the shit out of that, like when she first walks in. And then David Carradine going through his whole story, just basically playing it up that he regrets what happened and regrets, um, you know, losing her because you can tell he still loves uh, Uma Thurman or Beatrix, Um, you know, and then obviously he goes through the whole thing of poisoning her just to get the true serum in her just to find out like why she left because obviously he was sad that she left. You know, he didn't want that to happen. So it just, really let you see the relationship and it's completely uh you know believable to me even though obviously Carradine is a lot older than um Uma Thurman in this you know I get the fact that Uma Thurman's character she kind of wanted that father figure because she might not have had one in her previous life she didn't really have a family you know the way it's set up so she would go for somebody who can be like a fatherly figure and give her this cool life um so that all just worked really well for me um so yeah the third scene is just excellent like i rewatching it i completely forgot that it was 50 minutes but it doesn't even feel like that like it just is so awesome like it doesn't it feels like it's a lot quicker than it actually is all right well with the good comes the bad so let's talk about mulligan moment if you had to do it all over again would you make the same choices? All right, so I would have given Bud, Michael Madsen, of course, a proper death or exit, like one that his character actually deserved. So, uh, hear me out. He went through this whole redemption arc, but even though he still deserved to die for what he did, just at the hands of Beatrix, as, you know, he's the only one that she wasn't able to actually get her revenge on, um, and, you know, he did enough to warrant twice the vengeance, you know, between this and burying her alive, killing her family, all that stuff, but, like, nah, it ends up being Elle doing it when she, like, turns on him, it's like, everyone's turning on everyone, why is there so much trust to begin with, you know? But anyway, yeah, I, I, I kind of wish that uh, he, he had a better death than what he was given. Um, one, you know, that would have let the bride have her proper revenge taken out on everyone. Now it's just everyone minus one, because obviously nothing happens to uh, Bud at the hands of uh, the bride. It's L who does, uh, who kills him. So, yeah. How about you? So it's funny because mine's actually bud related as well, but slightly different. So what I wish would have happened. So we have that whole scene where he's in a strip piss taken out of him by the owner the whole time and just tell him how much of a useless piece of shit he is. I wish bud would kind of maybe I wish there the scene would have maybe ended a little differently, like maybe with him walking out of the end of the parking lot and then maybe walking in, changing his mind and kind of maybe bud deciding 
hey, you know, I used to be this awesome assassin. I'm not going to live like this anymore. And maybe kind of, you know, uh, beat up the club owner or something and kind of decide he wants to live still. And the next scene, when he shoots um, Beatrix, Uma Thurman's character, because, you know, up until this point, it's played where he's kind of okay if she gets her revenge and he's kind of okay if he dies. But then right. he's sitting there ready for her with the shotgun. So I think it would have flowed better if maybe he was at the club. He's just resigned and to his fate and okay with dying. And then something snaps and he, you know, just finally has enough kicks to shit out of the owner, goes home, is ready for her. I don't know. Maybe that would have flowed better uh, for me together. I would have kind of liked something like that. Just tweak it a little bit, you know, just don't make him right. such a helpless you know, piece of crap, I guess is kind of what I'm saying, <laughs> but uh, you know, cause I like Michael Madsen. I, I wish he had a little bit, something else different to do than just that. Love Madsen. Met the man, got a picture with him. I'll throw it up on Twitter uh, later on, actually just, uh, yeah. Film effect pod. Check it out. Me and uh, Madsen from nine years ago. I think that picture was taken back in 2013. It's actually, me, Michael Madsen, Metz, and Metz's brother, Ben. So anyway. So I asked, did um, you get him to did you did you get him to autograph your copy of Blood Rain on DVD or something? No, I got no autographs that night. It was a Friday <laughs> night, we went to the con and I just went around and spent like ten, twenty bucks here and there. Some were free. Just I was getting pictures taken with people. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, it's that's where it's at. It's getting pictures taken because Autographs are like, yeah, it's all about that moment being there and capsuling that moment. So, anyway, before we get too off topic, let's move on because uh, this is our final two big categories. First, let's uh, announce who we thought the MVP was for Kill Bill Volume 2. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Uh, so my MVP for the movie is David Carradine. Uh, like it, it, it's just, I think this movie belongs, this half belongs to him. Because obviously, like I said, he wasn't really in it enough for the first part. You didn't even see him. Here, you see him full force and right off the cuff. And he's just superb and everything he's in anything he's given you know he 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 can make just a million bucks from he's awesome he's great in this movie um he's the best fight me i dare you i don't give a fuck (laughs) so yeah that's my answer for this david carradine how about you i mean for me it was close because you know i was tempted to say david carradine but i'm still gonna say uma thurman uh you know, she is still just so awesome. I I just love watching her in this. I mean, again, like this to me is like her star making role. Like, I mean, this is when I think of her, I think of Kill Bill volume one and two, Um, you know, she's on such a long journey through this movie and she pulls it off so well. Um, I mean, she's completely convincing to me in the final scene, you know, when she walks in and sees her daughter for the first time, just the, you see all the emotions on Uma's face right there and it just sells it. And then as the scene continues, 
just seeing the regret and anger, but happiness because she's seeing her daughter for the first time. Uma pulls that through on every that she's been on this long road um, to get revenge. And then now she's getting a second chance at life. And then, you know, I know some people made comments about the ending when she's crying on the bathroom floor. I'm like, she accomplished her goal. She got her life back with her daughter. That's all she cared about. She right. admitted it. She knew that Texas yeah. life might not last with uh, what's his name? The Plimpton guy, but she had her daughter. Like that was the most Tommy. important thing. So yeah. So she knew Tommy might not last, but her daughter was the important thing. Um, so, you know, that whole scene of her crying at the end made sense to me. Um, another thing I think of her character, cause you see her uh, when she's younger and first getting trained, you see her kind of when she's a badass assassin in the scene with a pregnancy test. You see mm-hmm. her present day. Like you see the different versions of her. And I think Uma just pulls it off with subtlety, but different enough where it feels like it's definitely different stages in her life, not just an actor on a different uh, scene in a different set that day. Like the character feels different throughout the different scenes. And I think Uma pulls that off very well. Um, so yeah, for me, it's still her. Like, kill she owns Kill Bill volume one and two, in my opinion. Very good. Uh, how about the MVP for the whole bloody affair? If we were to pick one, would would she still be you know the one for the whole thing for you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I I picked her for volume one and now I got Carradine for volume two. So for me, I guess, I don't know. I no, it's a no-brainer. It's Uma. Uma. Uma owns this whole entire, you know, affair. So, even though she kind of takes a back seat to Carradine in Volume Two, overall, I, I I think this is Uma's movie through and through. So, you were gonna say something. I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. What was it? No, I mean it's just it has to be her. Yeah, I mean Quentin Tarantino, you know, conceptualized this movie for her. You know, he thought of it like back in the old days of, you know, when the actors and actresses were all signed to the, you know, studio contracts and writers were basically made to make their big, you know, actor that's signed with that studio look good. And that's essentially what Quentin Tarantino was trying to do. He's trying to make this movie to make Uma Thurman look like a star and look good. And he succeeded. I mean, she looked like a million bucks through the movie. All right. Um, final thoughts. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. All right. So my final rating, four stars. Same for the whole bloody affair. Oh, it's just raining fours all around for me. Four out of five, through and through, <laughs> this, the whole thing. Just, yeah. Um, yeah, just where to begin. I mean, I didn't really just... Sometimes I'll write out little notes here and there about my overall thoughts, but I just left it blank because I just wanted to just go off with it. Uh, so yeah, the the volume two, like I mentioned numerous times, a lot better experience than the first time seeing it. This movie was really deep. This movie had a lot happening that I never saw before. Um, I love the slow burn, like I said, the the build up for a, a, a lot of key el- plot elements. Um, you know, we're, we're just executed and, and, and just overall, um, 
this is just, I don't know how else to describe it, other than this is a really, really good movie that just, I'm taken back just talking to you about it, the, the fact that I just went from not liking this movie one bit, in fact, I refused to watch it for almost 20 years, and now that we have this neat little podcast and we're talking about it, and I'm like, nah, I gotta watch it, and I'm sitting there watching it, scratching my head, thinking, where's the bad shit, why, why, what, what's up, Ed? you know what's what's up 15 years ago Ed, or whatever it is like this is now so um so yeah four stars that's more than fair and i'm 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 happy with that rating how about you what would you give this my rating's the same four out of five stars uh you know i love the movie I love both of them, the whole bloody affair. Uh, you know, while it's not my favorite work from Tarantino, all my all the work from Tarantino is still great, in my opinion. Like I he hasn't made a bad movie, you know. Uh say what you will about maybe Death Proof Us, but you know, uh this these movies are I've always just loved them. They're they've always just been great, you know, because like I mentioned in the first episode, it was the first Tarantino movies that I got to see in theaters because I was definitely too young for reservoir dogs and pulp fiction and then jackie brown i was on the cusp like i remember when it came out but i was you know i was just a little too young so these were like my first tarantino theater experiences i've seen every other tarantino film since then in theaters uh and obviously that'll continue as long as he keeps making them uh but i just yeah i love the movies i've always liked the first one and the second one pretty much equally for different reasons um you know i've always appreciated that they were kind of different um, you know, thinking back to it, I can't imagine it released as one movie. I just can't imagine it as a four hour movie. I really have a hard time seeing people sit through that. And I really don't think the movie would have been nearly as successful if it was released in one part at four hours. I think they made a good call. I think this is one situation where it wasn't motivated necessarily by greed. Yeah, I'm sure the Weinstein saw dollar signs, but I think even though it might've been brought on by that, I think it ended up being a good decision just because Tarantino added so much stuff. I mean, the way the film sits, I can't imagine it being released in one part. Now, if he would have trimmed and moved some stuff around, sure. You could definitely make it into like maybe one three hour, two hour, 45 minute movie. And I'm sure it would still be awesome, but the way it sits, I can't imagine this movie being released in um, one part. I I, th- I think it would suffer if it was released in one part. I like the way we got the Kill Bill volume one and two. It's just such a unique thing to have. Like the first part is the crazy fast paced revenge story. And then the second part, you know, kind of the payoff and filling in the blanks and learning more about the characters. So I've just always enjoyed them. And, you know, I, you know, I, I've watched them back to back, but for me, it's always been kind of two separate sides to the coin. This episode is sponsored by The Art of Cinema. After watching the whole bloody affair, I feel like I just watched a four-hour film reel, of, film reel of the history of various genres from around the world. Some pretty exciting stuff. And that'll put a pin in the whole bloody affair. A series that 100% gets that film effects seal of approval. And so that brings things home for this edition. Another round of film effect madness, as we say. As we always say, one down, many more to follow. 
Check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at our website, which, of course, is thefilmeffectpodcast.com. And please follow us on the following social media platforms for future announcements and up-to-the-minute uh, up updates and news updates. Uh, up-to-the-minute up... Shit. <laughs> We're on Facebook and Instagram. I know, a lot of updates. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Film Effect Podcast. Check us out on Twitter at Film Effect Pod. We're on TikTok at Film Effect Podcast. And finally, all emails can be sent to thefilmeffectpodcast.gmail.com. All right, so before we go, let's talk about reviews and ratings for a second here. So every week I do my little thing here, and I always tell people about, you know, where they can go and leave ratings and reviews. And I do it every week for every episode but they don't happen, and it's been a while, honestly, and 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 I kind of miss them, you know. <laughs> I know people will listen. I know people are tuning in. It's been in. a while. I, I see that. Did you rate it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was good, but yeah, I mean, it it it, it doesn't take hard, long. It doesn't take long, and we're not asking you to like you know write a whole paragraph and shit like. You know, a couple sentences, even one, if that suffice. Hell, you can just leave a rating, and, and that'll be do. That'll that'll be all right, you know. But it just, I feel like you know, either <laughs> no one's doing it or we're not seeing it. One of the two. So, what's up? I I just thought you were gonna say, uh, just leave a rating. Hell, if you just want to mash your head to the keyboard for the explanation, that's fine as long as you left the rating. <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's funny as shit. Oh, man. But, man, we did it. That's another fun-filled episode of the Film Effect Podcast in the bag. Corey, as always, it's been a true pleasure. Yeah, fun times. And we'll be back in just a couple of days with our 20th anniversary Panic Room episode, a film I feel rarely gets talked about. I mean, hell, doesn't even have a proper Blu-ray release. So, it's that kind of film. Um, but yeah, that'll all change next week. Oh no, I'm sorry. That'll all change in two days because uh, <laughs> we we uh, here at the Film Effect Podcast believe in giving the true classics their proper due. And folks, Panic Room just so happens to be one of those true American classics I'm talking about. Or maybe not American, but there's, it's a true classic. I think it is. I don't know. It was a big anyway. movie. It was a big movie when it came out. I remember it. It was it was pretty big hit when it was, was out it? twenty years ago. I, I got I got it's been twenty years, dude. I got I got to like reeducate myself. I haven't really given a damn about the movie. I mean, I've watched it a few times. Like when I say a few, I've seen it like five or six times since uh, its release, and you know. I've always liked it. I've always had fun with it, but it's not really a movie I go back and think or reflect on or think about too often. So I don't know. I'm 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 not, I'm not sure how much movie how much money it made. So, but anyway, Thursday, me, Corey, Fincher, Film Effect. Until then, as always, it's been fun, but now it's done. Say goodbye, Corey. Bye, Corey. Alright, take care now. Bye-bye. See you guys.
This concludes our broadcast day.